Before we kick this show off, let's hear a word from our sponsors. Under Pressure Outdoors is brought to you in part by Hasmore Outdoor Products. Hasmore Outdoor Products manufactures quality replacement seats for a multitude of climber brands as well as a host of other products built with the hunter in mind. Take it from us. Your butt will thank you and you'll be able to spend more hours in your stand. Hop over to their website by clicking on the link in the podcast description and order the tree stand trick out kit for your stand today and you'll have everything you need to hunt longer and harder. Make sure you use code UPO15 at checkout to get 15% off your next order. I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. Well, we're back this week, and uh, you got me in here as always, and Jordan. I'm here. Jim? Yes, sir. With the wonderful dinner he brought with us this evening. What, oh, gosh. Jim, explain what this, this meal laid before us is. Uh, today we did venison Sunday gravy, though. I cheated a little bit. So started out by browning down some neck bones. Those are beef. I love pork neck bones. Didn't happen to have any. Um, and I didn't want to go to venison because you get a little too, uh, the, uh, what's the stuff I'm talking about? The, uh, it's a waxy. Mm. So, um, but everything then. A lot of the meat in there is things like your tri-tip and your heel roast or, or your hip roast. Meatballs are all ground venison. And then um, the sausage, though, was alligator. That's so, just, that stuff was good. It was. In fact, I was. it was my last package of alligator, and I've eaten a bunch of it. The, the sausage just, like, grilled or whatever. And now I'm really wishing that I'd use more of it and stuff like this. Oh, yeah, no, it was, awesome. it was killer in the it's day. Great. Yeah, so it's yeah. Sunday gravy, you know, just uh, old-fashioned Italian recipe. Uh, I have no Italian whatsoever, but <laughs> I learned how to cook. So, and then we've got uh, Chad in here with us this evening, and we're we're talking spear fishing, scuba diving. The summer's coming in, coming around. Although the low tonight here in Florida, where we're at, is like thirty nine degrees. Uh, Holy cow! This freak weather storm come through and snowing all over the place. People thought it was spring already. Hell, I had the AC running in here this morning. Because it was already hot when I got up this morning. Then, you know, the rain pushed through, cold front came in, now it's dropping like crazy. Oh, man, we went to the Cast and Blast Expo this morning and drove right <clears> through <throat> where that, uh, it couldn't have been long before we drove through a dang tornado touched down in Ocala. Yeah, I heard yeah. about that. Drove right past it. It was wild. So, Chad, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into scuba diving so on and so yeah, forth. Yeah, sure. So, my name is Chad Patterson. Um, I have CFL Scuba Repair in Umatilla, Florida. I have been diving for 40 years now. Yes, I'm that old. Sorry. Uh, but no, I started when I was a kid. I was eight years old. I'm diving with my dad and been scuba diving all over the world and been teaching for about almost 30 years now. Um, so I teach scuba diving. I enjoy spearfishing. One of my favorite hobbies is part of diving. I do um, light salvage work. I repair scuba gear, teach people to dive. So a lot of different dive-related things. And so you even have some stuff there at your shop where you can buy. Yeah, I sell stuff yeah. at my shop and repair. Um, do a lot of that. Uh, you know, uh, let's see what else. Um, training. Like I was in the 
springs today. We had four students in the springs, and they were we were, they were like two hours. It was seventy two degrees, and they're like, okay, it's time to get out. We're getting chilly. <laughs> so you you can you certify people? Yes, I do. Um, <clears throat> right now I certify through Patty. I also instruct for other agencies as well. What but is Patty? Patty stands for Professional Association of Dive Instructors, and they're the largest certifying agency. Um, I just had to choose one at one point because I couldn't afford to pay them all money. And and I just chose that one. It was easy to get books and cards, and they had good materials for students to use to learn. So, yeah. So what is it? I mean, everybody's going to want to know, what does it cost to be scuba dive certified? Anywheres from 400 to $600, somewhere in there. Give you a range. Um, and you're going to need some personal equipment like mass fin snorkel um, is what you know. I have my students get. And you can be certified as little as four days, but it's not something you want to rush. You know, If I was right. doing classes one-on-one with someone, yeah, we can get it done quicker, but it's not something we want to rush. you got to take some time and learn it. And you know... Biggest drawback I have been seeing from people not doing it is not money, it's time. Yep. Yep. And that time commitment and making that commitment like anything else. Um, I made, just to give you an example, I made a commitment myself um, last year. I looked at my wife and said, you know what, honey? We are going to go to Africa on a dive trip and we're going to go this coming November. And I made the commitment and I've made the payments on the money and got the airfare and just it, it just worked itself out but i had to make that commitment and make it a priority you know and that's what it that's what it amounts to that's a big deal that i see so is that a, a dive certification is that something like uh do you have to recertify or is that you know kind of a one and done as long as you have so many hours or all right, so, yeah, once you're certified, you're certified for life. It's good for a lifetime. If you haven't been diving in a few years, you need to get a refresher course and, you know, get keep yourself acclimated, keep yourself comfortable. Um, that is important, you know. Um, but it's, yeah, you're certified. And there's you, you have the basic open water, but then you can go up and do other courses from there. So that's just the start, you know. And, you know, it also depends on what people want to do. You know, some people just want to learn. Takes, I want to become a certified diver. Okay, we can do that. Then there's the people that uh, they um, want to keep going. And it's a lifestyle sport. It right. is something. It's a deficit spender lifestyle <laughs> sport. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm a recovering divaholic. You never really get out. But... Uh, yeah, no. It, I don't want to scare anybody off if anybody's interesting. It, it's, in fact, that's one of the things that's wonderful. In fact, if you have a hobby that you can't go broke doing, you're in the wrong hobby. It's kind of like podcasting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no bottom to this hole. I could see myself being a, a deficit spender diver. It's something yeah. that I, I've always taken an interest in, and I thought, you know, man, there was a time when I was really, when I was a lot younger, when used to be a dive shop where that... Uh, it's a veterinary clinic now in Mount Dora. That was mine. Was it? Yes, it was. That was my, yeah. my yeah, family's business. Telling. Yeah. I used mm-hmm. to drive by there all the time. I was like, I want to I want to go get certified scuba dive. But this is 16-year-old me, and I'm like, hey, yeah, but I, I don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And now you got money and kids. No, 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 no. I got kids, therefore I do not have money. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
But no, talking about kids though, I have trained my kids, and I have I'm lucky. I have trained grandparents, parents, and, and grandkids now. I'm on my third generation. Been doing this long enough, but watching your kids and something you can do as a family, especially when their kids are teenagers and you need something to do with them, you can connect. Oh yeah, it so can be a really cool thing. Do they have like smaller tanks for kids? Oh yeah, yeah. They have smaller tanks. Yep. You use fifty cubic foot or sixty three cubic foot tanks. Yep. Hmm. So and they have small gear that can fit them. So you got to be ten years old to get certified now. Okay. So a ten year old could do it. So really, that, that means there's no excuse for you guys not to mm. do it. Right. Man, I took a bunch of Boy Scouts down to the Keys and got them all certified. Really? Yep. Man, you want to talk about nerve wracking though as the adult leader? Because you forget that they're pretty damn capable, and once they're off on their own, and they're told that they can go off on their own, they go off on their own. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Balls on a pool table. I can, yeah, I can <laughs> imagine. <clears throat> so what? Uh, I said. You, I guess you said earlier you got you were diving at the age of eight. Eight. Yes. My father took me diving. So. Um, so this is a generational thing for you. It's yes, something you learn from your very dad. much so. My kids, yeah. my kids are third generation, and yeah, so it's very generational in our family. So that's I find that interesting and unique. Um, I found um, I had one, two kids here in Eustis. In I don't know if you know the Watson family. They own Quality by Design. Anyway, they're the landscape contractor. Mm-hmm. But I taught their two kids, and the son turned the youngest. He turned ten. By the time they had been in the pool since, with their dad since they were five years old, they could do master scuba diver level skills at ten. <laughs> it was like wow, anything I could dream up for something hard to keep them occupied, they could do it. It, it just amazes me, you know, and, and see, what's know, capable of. I know scuba diving is something my son would absolutely love. That kid is a fish in and of himself. He was, uh, he was man, four going to swimming lessons, and the teacher was like. I have nothing else I can teach you. You need to join some kids, little kids swim team. So like I can teach you different strokes, but we've had him in a pool since he was two mm-hmm. swimming. He took his first swimming lessons at a, a year, you know, like float lessons. Sure. And then every year after that, he was going back, going back, going back. And we had an above ground pool. We lived in Georgia. Now we've got an in ground pool here and you can't keep that kid out of the water in the summertime. So, He'd eat it up. Yeah. You know, the best, and you know, with your son being just under ten, get those kids to snorkel. Take them scalloping. Yeah, don't even get yeah. me started on scalloping. I love it so much. If I couldn't go diving, that is phenomenal. Yeah. That's something we got to try with him this summer. He hasn't been able to do that yet. Cape Sand Blast, baby. Yeah, <laughs> I'd like to Run go him out the critter getter. Yeah, we get him out. Lobster. Yeah, I've yet to go. So tell me, you were showing us some absolute monsters earlier. Yeah, but we can't talk about where we got those from. Well, I don't, I don't expect you <laughs> to. You're not, not going to get my yeah. secret spots now. I don't expect you to. I don't expect you to tell me where you got them. I will Although tell I know you. you told me. I will tell in, everybody. In, 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 in. Doesn't mean you'll be all you got and get them right away. It ain't easy. Right. But uh, yeah, you know when they're the as long as a F two fifty tailgate, that's a good sized lobster, and Daytona Beach, all, yeah. all all up and down the coast, and but. You're in 90 to 100 feet of water. It could be 45 degrees in zero, and low vis. It can be really nasty, but they're they, there. They start out you know, down in the Caribbean, and the, you know, the, the Gulf Stream moves north. Right. So they eventually, by the time they get up here, they're old. You'll find, them, you'll find rinky-dink lobsters all over the Keys. Just sure. piles of them. There's plenty of keepers down there, too. But 
you know, I'd say by about the time this, I mean, we pulled, biggest lobster I ever pulled was off a deep beach dive off of Wabasa. Pretty sure that, I haven't been back there in a while, I'm pretty sure if I try to get out, I have to go through somebody's, you know, $850 million living room today. But <laughs> the further north you go, they, they do, man. They stack mm-hmm. up. They get big. They get big. Yeah. So you should be able to find some real giants up by like Jacksonville, then, right? Oh, yeah. I've never seen, I never caught one up there, but, um, well, it's also, it's, na- it's, it's nasty diving by most people's oh, comparison. Sure. Like you see, dark, cold, mm-hmm. <clears throat> long viz is three feet. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So you're down there really searching. It's spooky. For yeah. You're down there on a piece of rock looking under the ledges and looking. Yeah. You got to have natural rock structure. They won't find them on a wreck or artificial. They want that. Na- no. You could find them artificial, but they don't like wrecks. They want natural rock structure. Huh. Just they like crevices and holes to hide in. Yep. Slipper yep. slipper lobsters for some reason seem like cars. I don't know why that is, but yeah, he's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, of course he's right. He's been diving longer than I have. But what's a, what's a slipper <laughs> lobster? It's like a shovel lobster. It doesn't it? Well, it doesn't have any of those. Okay, so what's okay, a shovel so back lobster? Up. Okay. <laughs> You're gonna have to look at Google. Uh, they, the lobster we're talking about here, the spiny lobster, they got the tentacles. Right. Okay. A shovel they, lobster. They don't. Has, so they they don't have claws like you see. Yeah, on there's the lobsters no claws. And, those and, are the main lobster, and they're up yeah. in Maine and. Um, you know, up Massachusetts, up north. These are the good tasting lobsters. Go ahead. So a shovel has like a like a two little flaps in front of them, like in front of them. His nose. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know and, what you're talking about. Bulldo- they call them a shovel bulldozers. Nose. Yeah, uh, and he can push through the dirt and push stuff, and he eats in the sand. But it's got a lobster tail like a lobster. You, can, always... get those, you can get those anytime. There's no limit on those, and there's no season. They remind me of a. Uh... Uh, Roly poly or pill bug, as some people call them. Right. Yeah. yeah. Kind of. Th- those are some of the best eaten ones. Yeah. Are they really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. They're fantastic. Where do and you find cars off the coast? No, I just, <laughs> I just, I've more than once been. You find some dinky car like that. Somebody, I don't even know how I got out there. Like, so there's, there's cars in the Gulf, and you'll find them, you know, around cars. But I, out there, it might be that you're finding them around cars because they don't have out in the Gulf. You don't see. You take your way out. Yeah. You don't see the big structure. It's the only thing out there. Oh, it's like, yeah, you get off the coast uh, in the Gulf, flats fishing, you get two miles out and you find a rock. Oh, yeah. It's just loaded with everything you can think of. But very rarely lobsters. But, you know, I do a lot of spearfishing and lobstering. But when I go out of Homosassa a lot in that area, you know, you don't see lobster out there. You go out middle grounds, you're going to find lobster. I have found one lobster in the last 20 years in um, Homosassa. And I'm like, I'm like, Oh my God! There's a lobster. It's legal size. It's lobster season. I'm like, crap! I don't have anything to get it. Yeah, but how? Well, yeah. What kind of limestone blowout was he in? You could have wrestled him out. You oh, know? I, I could have grabbed. And I'm yeah. like, I got gloves. I can grab them. You know, I'm like, oh, it's gonna hurt yeah. because I did make the mistake once. You know, they tell you, you know, you never stick your hands in holes. Well, I stuck my hand in a hole after a lobster, and you would have. You never saw some. But he jerked her hand out so fast. Thank God it was a small Maury eel. But he got Ooh. me. He got me in the knuckle, bit right through the glove. I'm like, that lobster bit me. I'm like, wait a minute, it doesn't have teeth. <laughs> what the hell are you thinking? And I look, and I should have checked the hole, and I didn't look. And my own fault. Shoved yeah. my hand in there. That Maury nipped me in the knuckle. Yeah, that was not to, fun. I used to wrestle him out all the time, and ne- never got, never got bit. Never had a bad experience, other than, you know they. The spinies have that those two horns up on the the front of their carapace mm-hmm. on their head, 
and they'll, they'll dig those things into the reef, and then they dig them. I don't. It's amazing for a small animal how they're really strong, oh. and it, and it's they just lock themselves in there. Everything on there is spiny and sticky, and by the time you twist and rip and rip them out, you pull them out, and they got no legs. And you know, you learn <clears throat> a lot of times. Also, you learn that if you if you just find one, it's probably a female. You pull it out, and damn eggs. Gotta let it go. Right. Yep. All that eggs done. So, can they whip you with those big antenna they've got? No, right? they use them to feel, and they'll back away. Uh huh. But when you try to grab them or pull on them, oh yeah, they just disappear. The, the bottom of the tail mm-hmm. has sharp things. Everything's sharp on them. So hmm. you got to have gloves on. You know they'll tear you up yeah. um, if you don't have gloves. So. Huh. Well, I think about catching lobster and going back to like catching crawfish in the in the. Uh, Creeks, Creeks as a kid. Mm-hmm. Speaking of crawfish, before we continue, crawfish bowl coming up. Buy your tickets. Uh, but and you go to buy the, you go to grab those, and you're oh yeah, where the heck did it go? Just one slap of the tail, and that sucker gone. It, yeah. The lobster are the same way. Yeah, and then they make that big cloud of dust when it mm-hmm. disappears. So there ain't no no chance in finding them. Yep. <clears throat> but so you know, earlier you said, oh, you know, I think I want to get into diving. That's one of the things as a as a hunter. Um. I mean, as soon as you get certified, you're seeing all these fish, and you're like, I get that, I get that, I get that. And that's the thing. Next thing you know, you got yourself a rife spear gun. Yeah, see, the thing is, is like... You can I, go to Chad and buy a spear gun, too. I'm not, yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm not a great fisherman, like a rod and reel fisherman, but if you can, and that's probably not a good thing, I don't need to get dive certified, because then I'll just end up with more crap I can't afford. Um <clears throat> but isn't that you, life? You cha- right? And then you change the the fishing scene to a an underwater hunting scene, right? Yeah. And that's just a whole nother ball game in itself. Yeah, the funny part about it is it's not as easy as you think. People think, well, I'll just swim up to it and shoot it. The fish know. I don't know how they know because they you, know you can have. I've been usually I don't spear fish on a reef with a whole bunch of tourist divers, but. Sometimes it happens. You bump into them, you know, because there's groups on the same reef and it's fish all over. The, well, sometimes they're feeding them bread dough or hot dogs, too. That helps. <laughs> um, but fish will swarm up to divers that don't have spear guns. But they just, I don't know. They just know. They got to have, they got to be like crows, right? Because if you see crows out in your yard, you can walk out there with nothing in your hand and they'll they'll hang around the trees, whatever else. Walk outside with a pellet gun. See how long crows stay in the trees. They will disappear every time. They know. They yeah. Know. So, like, if you're hunting a buck and going for a white-tailed deer, you see the, you know, you're not going to see the buck. You're going to see the fawns. You're going to see the doe. But you need that buck with, not the spike, you need the eight point. Mm-hmm. You know? It's the same thing. Those they're, And they're smart now. I'm telling you, they know. I think we, in general, uh, discredit fish and animals on their intelligence level. Mm, we do. I mean, you watch a dang, you watch a big bass. I mean, it is it is a momentous feat in and of itself to for a bass to get over five pounds, let alone ten to twelve pounds, right? Okay. And a bass that's that big is always a female, but she's seen so much thrown at her throughout her entire life. And you throw a dang, she'll have a be up a bass up on a bed. You'll throw it up there and knock it in the head with something. They'll hit it, spit it right back out before you can ever yeah. set the hook. And man, it just makes me so mad. But they know better. They do. And you know what's neat? You get to go diving 
And you, if you go in some of the clear, clean, clear lakes, you can see these bass bedding and the beds. And, you know, and you talk about that. It's like when I'm not spearfishing, I absolutely love to go down and look and look at fish behavior. What are these animals doing? What, you know, what's going on? What, what, what am I not seeing? You know, and look, it, there's so much out going on. Seth, I feel like I, I, I can antiquate a lot of that to like, I guess really hunting in general. I was going to say duck hunting because you, and especially duck hunting specifically, the birds move so much that you're, you're just continually watching a bird to see, you know, where it's moving and, you know, what time it's moving, what it's looking for when it's moving to certain places. So fish are the same way when you go and study them. Oh, they are. They are. And, you know, the things they do, how they congregate, you know, and, and what is this fish going to do? And then once you shot at it, you miss. Do I get a, am I going to get a second chance? Is it going to let me even get that close? You know, um, in you, you know, is it going to go into the rock? Is it going out in the reef? You know, where, where's a hole that it could go to? Um, and then it's different once you put a, a spear shaft in it. And you have to chase and follow it if you're free shafting hunting, which I enjoy doing. It's much harder, but you got to figure out where he's most likely going to rock up. And you look for the silt trails and how am I going to follow this fish? And there's a lot to it. But you talked about duck hunting. And my son duck hunts. And I'm sitting there. He goes, oh, yeah, that's such and such a duck. How do you guys know from 50 feet? I'm like, that's a duck? You, Dude, know? you just spend so much. I mean, it's just like I'm sure we could go down in the water and you could see a fish far away and tell me exactly what yep. it is. But I don't know yeah. what it is. And I'll be looking at, you know, I'll be out in the distance looking for a shadow. Yeah. You know, saying, oh, that's the shadow. That's what I'm looking for. How close can I get and stalk him? You don't chase him. You chase something underwater, you ain't catching it. Yeah. You stalk him. It, it reaches a point when you're duck hunting. If you spend enough time on the water, you can tell where the duck is just by how fast it's flapping its wings. Oh, so you can, uh, you can almost look at the shape of a body on a duck. Or like as it's flying, you can see the shape of its head and know what it is. So like, like I can look at a shape of fish and like, oh, that's this fish. Yeah. Gotcha. Just like that. But it's yeah. just practice. There are yeah. strategies. So well, it depends on where you're going. <clears throat> on the East Coast, you've got you know the the Gulf the Gulf um, the Gulf Stream that's you know blowing you north and down south it comes in pretty tight to shore, um, but you can go from thirty feet to hundred feet of water pretty quick if you're going east. Yeah, but at any rate, um, you get out there in the Gulf Stream, and if you go out say with a regular boat, if you don't have somebody that's got a private boat and willing to follow you around, you're on a you got to go out on a boat with a captain that. Doesn't mind if you go spearfishing or lobstering. Most of them don't mind lobstering, but some of them are a little more tentative about spearfishing. At any rate, you dump in, or they'll dump you off someplace that's not necessarily the rest of the tourists are going to be. And it's not going to be the big pretty stuff that you think. A lot of it's just sand. Most of it's desert. But there are these limestone blowouts. And the limestone blowouts might be in, as you said, 80, 90, maybe even 100 feet of water. Mm -hmm. You can't stay down there because you're, you're using too much gas. And you're, you're nitrogen loading. So... <clears throat> These days we all use computers to hopefully help you from getting the bends or if you're diving mixed gases or something called oxygen toxicity, I don't want to go down that hole. But long story short, you'll you'll drift at maybe 30 or 40 feet and just let the current push you. You're using very little energy, using very little air. And you're looking out in front of you, and you can do that in the Gulf Stream because it's pretty clear, and it's just limestone, limestone. But there'll be one that for whatever reason has a bunch of fish on it. And chances are, if that limestone has fish, it's got lobster. And chances are, if it's got fish, not too far off where all the modest you know, fish are, 
there's a bruiser. Yep. He's there somewhere. And, or she's there somewhere. And, uh, and there's other things you can do. Like, most of the time you want to run from sharks. Sharks are also great to follow. Because <laughs> sharks will eat things. And when sharks eat things, big fish come running. And uh, I wouldn't advocate this, but there are guys out there that shoot Kobe off the back of bull sharks because Kobe will follow them like puppies. <laughs> yeah, that's a... You know, I, yeah, I know about that. I, I, I might have seen it done. Uh-huh. Uh, I've been there, done that. That's how I got my first cobia. I, I've yeah. been around sharks, and I don't, I don't, I, it, I don't know. It all comes down. It's like alligators, man. It's a healthy respect for true the apex predator of the, the what you're in. Because when you enter the ocean, you are not the apex predator. No, when you enter a lake to do anything, you are not the apex predator. And you, when you come to a, an understanding of that and a healthy respect for what is the apex predator, it's it's a lot easier, you know, uh, in my opinion, to just be comfortable. I would say maybe maybe I haven't spent enough time down there, but I, from what I have ran into scalloping-wise, the sharks that I've ran into aren't, you know, people think they're going to hunt you down and bite you there. Nope. They're just moseying around doing their own thing. Well, just, most of them you don't have to worry about it. Well, usually... There's a couple that you really need to pay respect to. Obviously, bull sharks. And I would suggest that for the most part, especially if there's any merc, you run into bull sharks, it's it's, it's time to go. Um, and any of them down on the floor, like on the seafloor, because um, they won't always stay there, but when they're down on the seafloor sniffing around, they're, they're just doing their thing. So when they come up in the water column, they come out to check you out. That's when it gets a little bit nerve-wracking. But when you when you run into sharks near the surface when you get into the the gumbo. Near the surface there's a big layer of gumbo. When they've come up in there, that's when it's nerve wracking. But yeah. mm-hmm. um really now that I've gone through that to to, to be a diver that's had reasonable experience with sharks, you spend a lot of time in the water. And you're also not in any of the pretty reefs. Most of them you're not on the pretty reefs. Lemon right. sharks will come in I don't know if they still yeah. do. They used to come in. Yeah, they come in to me. In the wintertime. Yeah, yeah. but, but lemon sharks, bull sharks, and lemons, you know. But um, really, anybody that's thinking about getting into the water or the recreation, especially diving, sharks are just not something you have to worry about. It's actually pretty dang cool when you see them because most of the time you won't. And if you do, they're gone. Um, they rarely ever stick around. You really don't want them to stick around. Um and you're probably spearfishing or doing something. I saw a pretty good tiger shark down in the Keys sure. one time I went down there. Uh, and it was between me and the surface, and I just chose to wait. I was, uh, I might have been 18, 18 or so. But that, I was, that was cool. Say, I mean, I've seen. I was going to say, I was in eighth grade because I had a broken arm when we went to the Keys. So you would oh, have been. Yeah, no, I wouldn't have been. I'd have been in high school still then. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, no, you're in. So I was. In my senior year of high school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I've seen sharks when we're uh, scalloping out there in the in five, six feet of water. Oh, yeah. Just come swim up to you. And I at that point, when it swam up to me, I stopped. And I just maintained a watch on the shark until he left. And then I went back to what I was doing. And, you know, they're curious. They are very curious creatures. And they're very, you know, you can see them, like you said, when they come up to you, they're curious. They're going to circle. They're yeah, going to give you some. They're not just going to come out there and just come at you and grab you. It's not like that. And if you don't have any, when you're spearfishing, that's totally different when you have fish and dead fish around you. 
that's a whole different ballgame. If you're just pleasure diving and you get to see a shark, it is amazing. They're gorgeous, graceful creatures. The same for alligators. Like, I do a lot of training at Alexander Springs. I had my students like, Chad, look over there. There's an alligator. I said, what do we do? I said, get your mask on so you can get a better look at it. You know, yeah. you're 30, 40 feet away. You're plenty far enough away, but you have good visibility. Experience it. Look yeah. and see how it swims. Look how it can bend its neck. But to go back to a shark, you know, I have had people on, on dives like, hey, you know, he wanted to see a shark so bad. And I'm like, well, there's one out there, one out there in the distance. He's like, I don't see it. I'm like, come here. And I took him five feet where we just passed a nurse shark sleeping under a rock. I'm like, there, there's a shark for you. Are you happy now? You know, you, know? You, that's, you, you bring that up. I'm more concerned in freshwater about being near an alligator snapping turtle than I'm an alligator. <laughs> and in salt water, I'm more concerned about being near barracuda than I am near sharks. And they're just as scared of you, you know. But you, like you said, knowing an apex predator, yeah, in a in a healthy relationship, and they're just pretty damn graceful, you the, know. You, you got to worry more about the Goliath goofish. Gli, I said Goliath Jewfish. Yeah, for those don't know Goliath grouper. Forever were called Jewfish. Yes, and um, then they got named Goliath grouper. Um, they are more aggressive and more likely to sneak up on you, I think, than a shark is. At least from my experience. Really, I gotta absolutely you, agree with that. Yeah, buddy Jay Platt had one. Um, we, we guess he swam by it underneath a reef, or maybe it was tailing him. And he had a one of those clip stringers, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the ones that like giant oh, paper yeah. clips. Yep, just tucked into his um, tucked into his bathing suit. We were it was a warm day in the Gulf, and came up and dragged him down, <laughs> dragged him down <laughs> the top of limestone reef. Oh yeah, yeah. So. I um, I shot a, a fish, and before I get it off the spear. Goliath Cooper had that spear and I had the line attached from the spear to the gun and I held in the gun and that fish drugged me about 50-60 feet through the water so fast it was pulling my mask and my snorkel shaking that I was moving that like getting towed behind a boat that mm-hmm. fast and I'm being pulled and I'm like I'm not letting go of my gun and I'm like I finally on your spear tip you got two little butterfly wings that open mm-hmm. up they finally bent and broke loose and that's how, and he got the fish, and I got my stuff back minus the broken tip. And those fish are huge. They are huge. Volkswagens. And know that they just opened up a limited hunt. It's hook and line only. You get one per a tag, like like a, a gator tag. <laughs> and there's a slot limit. They're I read. small. I'll say they're small. Limit. And oh, yeah. that's and that slot limit small. I mean, y- you know, I get that they're protected, but they are coming back with a vengeance, and mm. they. It's are, a conservation success story. It's another one of it is it, it is, but it's time it, it's time to open it back up. I, I mean, I would love to go out and be able to hunt a really big one, even if you had to come bring it back and have a fish and game biologist come because they can get your bones out of those fish. They can tell the sex, the age, and everything about that fish. It's really cool stuff that they can do, and you know, it's. What's interesting about the the Goliath now? They found out they can actually age them from their spine. They don't have to take the otolith. Really? They can they can live age. Very them. neat. Really, yeah. that's pretty cool. So one of the things I actually wrote an article about it. I mean, you know, scholarly. Now, I I wanted to write an article about it when I heard they were considering things. So I did a pretty reasonably deep dive for a a layman. And I, I things I didn't know is that they do congregate in places in vast numbers to reproduce. So all those places are no bueno. Um, but another thing is they're really 
um, susceptible to cold weather death. So like, it'll be interesting. We talk about, oh, they're everywhere, right? Well, it's been pretty, we've had some pretty chilly, we've had some periods of cold weather recently. But not the water. The water's pretty, much more stable. It is. But like I said, the fish, because they need the consistency, mm-hmm. as I understand it, it's it's not like it has to get to 30 degrees. Like if, because if they're spending most of their time out there, let's say at a mean, a mean cold temperature, because they're cold-blooded animals, right? Let's say is what, 60? Okay. 50? Right? So I, I don't know. But if all of a sudden you end up dropping below a certain amount, that cold weather is really hard on Jewfish or Goliath grouper and cold mm-hmm. weather. And red tide's brutal on them, too. Red tide will definitely brutal on everything. Yeah. So For I think sure. That's why it is, what we talk, it's a fantastic conservation success story because, mm-hmm. like, uh, in the, Late 80s, early 90s, they talked about putting them on the endangered species list, and they didn't. They were imperiled for a long time, and now we do have a season on them. And I know a lot of people are disappointed that we can't go out you know, and shoot one of those things that looks like a Volkswagen bus. But, you know, Jim Hollis, no, Hal Watts used to have one back in the day hanging on his wall in his shop when he was around, right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I've watched that. Wow. Nah. And today, I'd like to get, man, because I'm, I'm a hunter, right? And I'd get one. Maybe I wouldn't. I don't know, man. What's the meat quality on a fish that big? If the meat quality is no good, I got no use for it, you know? i tell you what now. It, another a really cool mount to see, and I actually ran across this at work. Over here on uh, Lakeview, which is not far from where we're at now, you can drive down the street, and the dude has like a 17-foot sawfish replica mount that oh. he caught down in the Keys. And that thing is absolutely massive. I was at his house, and I knocked on his door, and I was standing there. It's in his carport. I'm standing there looking at it. I would die to see that. Now, in, in my 40 you years can, of diving, I've seen two sawfish side by side. We're out spearfish dry tortugas. Me and my buddy were swimming along. He's like, taps me, like, points. I'm like, oh, crap. They were just sitting in the bottom. They had to be that 17-foot range. They were huge, 20 yeah. foot. And he's like, he looks at me. Have you, he's like, did you ever see them? And points. I'm like, uh-uh. And we're just sitting there dumbstruck looking at these two massive sawfish in the water. Never. It he was said, a once in a lifetime thing. He said he caught it on a on a shrimp and fought it for five hours to get it back to the boat. Oh, oh I believe cow. it. Yeah, I mean it was absolute. It's an absolute monster. You go drive drive down Lakeview and just keep watch to the right. If you're coming from the house, you it's in his carport. You can see it from the road. We drove down there today and I just stared. Well, heck, past. we need to go have a beer with that guy. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned your parents got you into diving, right? Yes, your father. But you've been, was your father in the business? Yes. Uh, when we had our dive shop in Mount Dora, he started it, and I came into it as a teenager, as a kid. I actually started working. Let me back up. I grew up in upstate New York before we moved here in 90, and went. I went to high school here, and uh, we had a dive shop in our house. So when I was 12 years old, I was filling scuba tanks. I was doing stuff and behind the scenes. So, um and he started it, and it was CNN Divers, Chad and Neil. Uh, my dad turns 80 this year. Did he used to have a shop in Eustace, was it? Yeah, we were in Eustace um, by Bob Bolton's Allstate Insurance years ago. Actually, we started out there, and then we moved to behind Sonny's Golden Corral. So I, I dove with your dad 30 years ago. I don't uh, doubt it. Just on one of those <laughs> things where you run up to like Devil Spring and, yeah. and Blue Grotto. Yeah, that's funny. Blue Grotto's a cool one. I've, I've snorkeled that. It's kind of a cool little. It's, yeah. neat, it's neater when you go diving, though. I yeah. promise you, it's better. Oh, I I bet. Because I was gonna go to Devil's Den that day, and there was, something happened. We couldn't go, but then we found out that the Blue Grotto was across the street. Mm-hmm. 
and ended up snorkeling there. I was like, dude, this would be awesome to dive. So what's your deepest freshwater dive? My deepest done? freshwater dive would be in the springs and be 140 foot in Paradise Springs, which is a cave at that point, and it's pretty silty. Yeah. Mastodon bones coming out of the side of it. Really? So mm-hmm. That's wicked cool. My deepest, though, um, years ago when I was younger, I took a deep air course mm-hmm. into the ocean, and I was shooting for 250 feet. I blew through that at 273 by the time I got control of my descent to start coming back up. And that is my deepest, not the, not by choice. About 200, 220, I'm pretty good. And that's just me and knowing where I'm at. And that was with air, not no no mixed gases. So you have narcosis. Imagine, you're, for most people, I start noticing 80 feet. 100 feet to 130 feet, it's like two drinks on an empty stomach. You guys know how you feel. Well, at 200 feet, amplify that to five or six. <laughs> yeah, so that's five shots. We take five, six shots, and you're not getting behind a wheel of a car. And, yeah, you can almost be incapacitated. So You're so gone. Jordan being here painting stuff on the studio floor and knocking holes in the wall. Yeah, yeah. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that was the beyond incapacitated. I've had different people try to describe narcosis. And I don't know how any how I think different people experience it differently. Yes, Some people absolutely. are more susceptible than others. Um, I would say that narcosis is not something. In my experience, it's usually something I'm not aware of until I realize that it happened. Yep. Or or then when I would going back to the spear fishing and things like that, when you're at depth, all of a sudden you, you don't you're not really conscious. It's just things that should be easy aren't. Like, so you shoot a fish, and you're, you're let's say, 120 feet, and you t- you got to take, because you know, maybe went through the gill plate or something, you got to take the spear tip off to get the spear back out of the fish, and it's just taking longer. And then all of a sudden, now you've got the spear tip in one hand, and you, you know, dead fish or fish on the other, and you got to get it on a stringer, and then you got to somehow get that back onto your BC, and then you got to, and meanwhile, the, the if you're not free shafting, the cord's kind of getting wrapped around you, and then, and what really is dangerous is you're doing all this and you're still at the bottom. You forgot to start to ascend, right? And and then all of a sudden, and, but usually then there's, with experience, hopefully there's always that little voice that's like, hey, 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 you're, forgotten the, you're forgetting the most important part. You can't stay down here, right? And then, but and as you come up, even 20, 30, 40 feet, all of a sudden everything, for whatever reason, just seemed to be causing you, not anxiety, that's the funny, you don't get scared, but just, all of a sudden, everything's like, and, and you're, you're running on rails again. It's it's Diving is so cool in that so fact, it, like you're talking about, because you're you're literally, we're doing something we were not designed or meant to do. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. But, you know, you're right about the narcosis. It sneaks up on you, and the biggest thing people don't realize, so you're down there 120 feet. You know, at that depth, you, you, you're using your gas five times faster. You're burning through your Bingo. tank five times faster. And you don't realize that, and you and you're happy. You're happy. You're like, yeah, this is great. And you got to be on your, you got to be on your A game, you know. And when you put a gun, a spear gun in your hand, you put a camera, anything else like that, fun wise, you, it's it, it changes. You're not paying attention. Task loaded. Yeah, you know, you're task loaded. In yeah. So why do you burn your through your air five times faster at depth than you do at? Yeah, what do you say, 30, 40 feet? Well, it changes. Okay, so it's a physics thing. Um, 
The deeper you go, the more air you're going to use because the air gets denser. So think of it this way. When we're at the top, up here at the surface, we're breathing in air, okay? Oxygen, nitrogen, mix, we're breathing in. Okay, we're at one atmosphere of pressure right now at the surface. Air pressure is pushing down on us. Every 33 feet of salt water is another atmosphere of pressure. So at 99 feet, that's four atmospheres. So at 9,900 feet, you're going to breathe your air four times quicker. So every breath I take, when it comes through the regulator, that air is denser or thicker. It's compressed. Uh, imagine it being little particles. It's squeezed together. Like uh, when you go up in the high mountains, you can't get it. You're like tired, but you can't get enough oxygen. Well, now we're, you're super saturating that gas. Yeah, see, I was going to say that makes a lot of sense when you think about it in reverse. Yeah. Because right? mm -hmm. most people that don't dive understand the higher you go, the thinner the uh -huh. oxygen gets. Well, I guess it only makes sense that the lower you go past sea level, the denser everything gets. It gets thicker. Yeah, I was and saying, that's it, why using air qu qu quicker. So I was saying it really makes you, sense, too, because you think that if it's denser, you can fit more of that in a certain area so that you're when you breathe, you're using more than you would. So on the surface. one yeah. way of thinking of it is, let's say that if you were to just take an 80 cubic foot tank or a 100 cubic foot tank, whatever... Yeah, and let's say that we just were to sit here relaxed and breathe on it. And we might be able to breathe for 90 minutes before you run out of air. If you get on 33 feet and you can just chill there, you're going to run out of air in 45 minutes. At 66 feet, cut it in half again. Now you're, no, you're going to cut it by a third. You cut it by I'm sorry, a third. You're right, absolutely. And a fourth yeah. at 99, a fifth yeah. at 132. Right. So you're, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the other thing that happens is everyone, you know, we talk to people like, oh, I don't know, but I'll get the bends or, you know, or decom. We talked a little about narcosis. That's caused by the nitrogen, the partial pressure increase underwater. But then there's decompression sickness. And everybody's like, well, I'll get the bends or decompression sickness. And what it is is we can only, we have dive tables. Well, you know what's funny? I don't even teach dive tables anymore. It's all computer now. We have the option to do all computer. It is just phenomenal. When my wristwatch is a full dive computer with a transmitter, and now Garmin has a new one that does, when you pop up to the surface, it plots your GPS. It's they phenomenal fancy. what we can do with computers. And it's a safer way to dive, really, if you stop and think about it. But that's a whole other discussion. So a dive table, real quick. Um, I think it was the U.S. Navy or, or Navies or maybe, unfortunately, even some Nazis had figured a lot of this stuff out. They basically figured out how long a person could stay underwater, what their bottom time was at a certain depth um, before they would end up getting the bends. And the bends came, I guess the bends came from like uh, miners and guys that were building bridges and things yeah. when they were putting pilings down and they're, they're digging big holes to put the footers in and stuff. And when they would come back to the surface, they were getting all bent over, right? Same thing, even though they were in the ground versus in the water, they were, they were, mm -hmm. they were under higher pressure, yeah. but they were working on it for hours and hours and hours. And, They'd build up nitrogen in the blood because the when you go deep, when we breathe at the surface, nitrogen, which is seventy nine percent of the air, is nitrogen, right? Yes. Right. When you inhale, those nitrogen bubbles don't, the nitrogen molecules don't penetrate your alveoli into your bloodstream. Once you compress them, they can penetrate that that wall and they get into your bloodstream. And your body will keep them compressed, okay? Because your your body's under turgor, right? And and eventually they'll they'll come out naturally until you get too many of them. And then think like shaking up a soda, if you come up too fast, those 
bubbles are no longer held in suspension. They literally turn into bubbles. Right. And then the bubbles block your capillaries or worse and start creating all kinds of blood clots and all. And that's, that's when the hell breaks loose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, um, anyway, they, they, different folks figured out how long you could stay down at a certain depth. Or if you overstayed your welcome, how long you had to stay at a, shallow at a, depth. At a yeah. shallower depth, but you had to stay there for a while, like three minutes. And then you'd have to come up a little bit more and their atmosphere, you'd stay there, or not even atmosphere, 10 feet, right? You'd, you'd stay there another couple. Yeah. yeah, but then, so to be safe, the tables used to say, hey, if you hit this depth, they treated like your whole dive was at that depth. But now the computers are very sophisticated. They're constantly keeping track of where you were, keeping a much more accurate yeah. total. It's And it's so much easier. I mean, who doesn't trust a computer nowadays? You turn your car on. We, you know, we're tethered to phones. It's amazing. You know, so it that that's an area where technology has really helped diving. Yeah. And, you know, I love that you had brought up the caissons and the ca- they call it Couldn't caissons. Remember the that's what caissons. you were looking for. Thank and you. they found out in the Brooklyn Bridge, what a caisson is, it's a big, imagine a box, a cardboard box. And you put a big box down and they sink it, put rocks on the outside of the lid and sink it down and they pump it full of air. And they'd have a tunnel with, with a ladder. They go up and down, and they pump air for it, and you'd be down at sixty feet. Well, we know we can go to sixty feet for about fifty minutes. Okay, guys, working in there all day. Yeah, all day, twelve, Hard. fifteen hours, all day. Hard. And yeah. you're working, and they're just t- they're breathing. You know, they're pumping down clean air, but it's full of night. You know, the nitrogen. So they come up, and they're they're all crippled. Like, well, shoot, let's go to the pub. Let's get some drinks. Oh, even better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's like, and in, 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 then they get back to work and they're, they're stumbled back to work the next day, you know, and they go I back recompress. down. And they go back down. Oh, we feel better. And that's how they started really realizing. So you got the Navy with the dive bells. You got this. You know, this is the not early, late 1800s, early 1900s. They started figuring this stuff out. Then there's, um, it wasn't until the 1980s when we had Doppler ultrasound, you know, an ultrasound where we actually really learned about bubble formation and it made a huge difference in the safety. And it's, you know, a knock on wood and not, not that I'm not careful, but I haven't had decompression. I've never had decompression sickness. Don't have any desire. It's treatable. We can put you in a recompression chamber, but yeah. the, not even the skin bends. You didn't get a rash or anything. No, anymore. never had skin bends that, that I've noticed. You know, the problem is, is if I did have the bends, I'd be like, oh. So I have a bad knee. I get hit with a boat prop 10 years ago and tore up my knee pretty good. So, so I feel like we need to hear that story before the end of the Oh, podcast. that story is a pretty damn good story. And yeah, you, it's a good story. But um, but yeah, I would if you t- if my knee hurts after a dive, my knee hurts all the time. I wouldn't know. Yeah. And you're more susceptible in a bad joint, you know. Yeah. So there's just things. You, you might pawn it off as nothing. But, you know, and it, what really sucks about decompression sickness the only way to treat it is to put you in a chamber. Oh, you still hurt when you come back from the chamber? You didn't have decompression sickness. We can rule that out. And that's only about 20, 30 grand for a six-hour run. Oh. Yeah. You know? Oh, God. Yeah. Uh-huh. You, you know, you stop and think about that, you know, of how easy we can get hurt and the money it costs and just. That's why but, I used to pay my Dan premium every Oh, year. yes. I pay mine. <laughs> yeah. It's, Dan is an extra insurance thing you can get for. It's like having C-Toe for the boat or AAA or. 
But any in-water accident, you get air. They can help airlift you, and there's a lot to it. It's pretty cool. They pay for your chamber ride. Oh yeah, pay for your chamber ride. Actually, it's funny you say a chamber ride. Uh, there's a shop um, Tampa. They've got a chamber. They're gonna do um, narco night on Fridays and Saturdays, and let they have a chamber at the shop. The guy's a big commercial guy, and they're gonna run chamber rides. Come sweat profusely yes, and get claustrophobic and pay me money. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> but it would be fun to go in a chamber and have it just for something no. different and get narked. No? No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway. That's so, a different you, You're not sitting in a room like we're sitting in now. Oh, it's a you're tube. sitting in a little coffin. You're sitting in a metal yeah. tube. It's like this metal tube and you're in I, there. Where was so that? hospitals actually do have big rooms. They put the, a nurse in there with you and everything else. But yeah. So I was at the hospital in Savannah. When my daughter was born, I took a wrong term and came past their decompression chamber. And it's like the top is, I mean, it was a big tube, but it had glass in the top. And you could lay there and they had a TV facing down. And they give you the remote so you can watch Netflix while you lay in yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, nah, not for a diving one. So they, they do have chambers like that. Waterman right here. That's, that's, for, wa- that's for healing. That, that, yeah. that, that's for the healing and the wound care and stuff like that. And yeah, if diving has to go. We got to take you down 200 feet to, to correct it. <laughs> you need a chamber that will drop you. And there's... There'll be like 10 of those in Florida, probably. They're spread out in all the major cities. Yeah. So I'm sure your, but, big, your big port cities have one. Yep. Yeah. The, I've, you know, I've, I've never experienced it, never run into somebody that's been bent. But I've read, um, read an account of this book called The Dive, and it's about a father and son that were really, really experienced divers, but they dove on. Um, they were diving and looking for lobster. They got separated and then looking for each other, and they both overstayed there. Like, they overstayed their bottom time by a long time. And um, we just ran out of air. And they had to come up, mm-hmm. basically almost like with a rapid ascent. And uh, they came up like corks. And when you read the, when you read the, the, the what happened, the, you know, before they even got in the boat, they're all, like, crippled up in the fetal position and vomiting. Um all the capillaries in their eyes are starting to rupture. Blood's coming out their nose. Um, when they got a Coast Guard came down, you know, one of the, I guess the father was worth than the son. Coast Guard guy came down and basically said, he's dead. They weren't even going to take him. And they had to beg him. They said, look, the son might make it, but, you know, if he thinks, his, if he knows his dad's dead, that's just one less thing. But neither one of them made it. But when you read the account, that of all the things that I, um, when I was diving, a lot and I read that story that really brought it home to me that you know it's not something you walk away from and chamber idea or whatever but you you know I don't want to say it can there might be new people listening to this there's rules and all those tables we talked about earlier those navy tables are written in blood yeah you know it, it was trial and error that's how they figured it out and yeah. you're right there's rules to diving you know like you dive with a buddy so that way you have a backed up air supply you check your gear. You maintain your gear because it maintains you. Um, let's see. You check your air, monitor your air while you're down diving. That's what learning to dive is about is a set of safety rules and protocols that you're following so that these things don't happen. You know, in you know, I you know that you don't have that. You're paying attention and that's what you have to do. And once you know that and can follow those rules, you can dive safely. You know, you can have fun. But it's serious. It's not, you know. You know, those guys, they were on the Andrea Doria. Oh, my gosh. They're diving two, 300 feet. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a whole. That's not 
relative sport diving, the Andrea Dory, when you say that. And, you know, she's a deep wreck. She's two to three hundred feet. They were she's two, yeah. Yeah, so they were they should have been on mixed gases and you know, it just so we say mixed gases. I'm sorry. I, no, that's a good plan. That's a good point. So we should talk about that. The, the most basic mixed gas that we talk that, that sport divers probably should learn to use is nitrox. And what you're doing is increasing the partial pressure of oxygen in the mix. Mm-hmm. So you're replacing. So instead of 79% oxygen, you might take it down to say 65. No, 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 no. Yeah, no. I'm sorry, 79% nitrogen. nitrogen, right? You might take it down to. 64, 62. Yeah. Well, Patty likes there, two different blends. What are the two yeah, blends that the, Patty the, likes? There's two blends, but let's talk nitrox. When we talk nitrox, so like you said, we're adding more oxygen to the breathing mixture. So when we talk about it, we're good, we run 32, 36, all the way up to 40. Right. After 40, it's a, there's different criteria. But so, for example, if I can go to 90 feet for, say, 20 minutes, on I think on the tables, I've, I'm – Pretty sure that's right. Mm-hmm. I haven't looked at them in a while. Um, on air, I can go on a 36 nitrox for 40 minutes. I can double my downtime. Right. Because what I'm doing is we're putting more. Nit- nitrogen is base is what controls the computer and the diet tables and how long we can spend. So if we're getting less nitrogen, we get to stay down longer. Right. However. There's a cost. There's a cost. Oxygen toxicity. And that's a depth limit. So that if we run a, a 36 or a 32 mix, you have a depth limit. So, for example, a depth limit on a 32% mix, which is I use it a lot. I like 32 because I can get 100 feet. You have 107 to 109 foot maximum depth with that mix. That's deep as you go. Okay? So you don't want oxygen toxicity is a real limit. It's like that's it. That's as far as we go. It's like an electric fence. You guys know about electric fences. <laughs> Who's played with the electric fence? You know, you don't touch it. You don't lean on it. You don't straddle it. You don't but piss t- on it. T- tell tell, what, tell you, them why oxygen toxicity is so much more dangerous than nitrogen. Narcosis. Oh, my gosh. It's so much more. So oxygen toxicity, if you're lucky enough to notice it coming. and It's the last thing you'll notice. The last thing you notice. You'll go into a convulsion and just drown. You'll convulse oh. like a, uh, yeah. They just die. <laughs> yeah, you just you're, go. You're going along and then you're, you black out. Uh-huh. There so, was a really famous cave diver named Shaq Axley that's probably what got him. He was at 700 feet, though, I think, when he died. He was, Holy he was deeper, cow. He was deeper than that. He was almost 900. Maybe. Um, but but you gotta you got to remember. So let's back up and talk about it. He's a great guy. I've read his autobiography. And I, I, I've met him. You met him? <laughs> yeah, Damn. Back in the day. I wish he was dead by the time I realized. Yeah. But, you know, so it's funny. I You talk about Exley. Great cave diver. Great explorer. Mathematician. A math guy. He was. And, he was a math teacher. The, there are so many stories about him. I just loved him. But, you know, I went to Manatee Springs, and he was one of the first ones to go in Manatee Springs in the cave and map it out. I'm like, I'm diving more Exley down. I'm like, this is really cool. And the man I learned to cave dive from, you know Herb Sugden. I learned to cave dive from Herb Sugden. And you did too. And now, I don't cave dive enough now, so I don't belong that far into a cave. But that's okay. I know there's limits. I know where I don't belong. And if I want to go cave diving, fine. I'm going to do some refresher training and go with people that know what they're doing. Even though I'm certified and I have that card, I need to practice that. But, you know, Herb Sugden taught me and you. And you know what? Herb actually got to die with Exley. Mm-hmm. And that would have been cool. Herb was in the club. Herb was in the club. And you got to remember that that's a small club. And these guys were talking about 
like they developed a rule called the one third rule. That means one third of your air going into a cave, one third coming back out, and one third reserve. And that was huge. What's interesting is we're, you might say, second generation divers. Oh, very much so. You know, the, and I'm 50 years old, but you go back. So in the 1970s, the gear was nowhere near as, as fancy. They didn't have the rules. I mean, you, I think, when did they, when did they invent the modern regulator? You know, we had a, a you know, you went two from, stage. Yeah, you went from a two stage regulator that was somewhere in the 1970s. Yeah, I had a Healthways Maybe regulator. Maybe late 60s. 70s for sure right so these guys that were up running around the springs of florida i mean they were they were just going in with ropes um trying to figure out how not to get dead they used to make in fact when, when i was a younger fella they would make these canister lights that would hang off the back or if a guy had a single tank you'd, you'd strap to the top and it'd be basically just full of d-cell batteries just some homemade thing and a watertight light you know and they used to have to they used to have to fill their air bladders with, with a lot of air because they were going in with what, 30 pounds of lead. Yeah. You know, lead well, batteries on them. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean, mm-hmm. where, you know, it's, it was, and they, they figured it out. They, they, and guys like Hicks, Sheck Exley, and um, uh, a big side mount guy was a guy named Bill Renninger. I, I was also yeah, there for Yeah, Bill Renninger, sure. Yeah, Renninger. I'm sorry. He's the guy that figured out uh, Convict Springs. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it, but all, what I was going to go with all these fellas. Sometimes we think of scientists and explorers as being these lab coat wearing dudes who are well financed. No, man. Most of these guys, deficit spenders. Bill Renneker was a retired teacher and he came down here and was doing a lot of his exploring. Sheck was a teacher. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm blanking on a couple of names. A fella, another guy that died, I think they named Peacock after him. Um, well, they must have been Peacock then. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm being smart. But those guys, yeah. when we used to, I used to, when I was as a young fella, would go up to the NSS CDS conferences that happened up in Gainesville or Live Oak, and, mm-hmm. and you'd meet these guys. And at the time, they they seemed like legends because I thought I was going to be a monster cave diver and couldn't wait to go deeper and further and more dangerous and a sense of adventure. Um, and, you know, it was kind of more like the swashbuckling thing. And then I'd meet these fellas, and most of them were really quiet, they were introverts. They were not, that's the crazy thing. They were not risk takers, just the opposite. And it took me years to figure out that all the risk divers in the sport of cave diving didn't live. Nope. Every one of them's dead. Nope. Including some of the not risk takers because they kept pushing the edge and pushing the edge. And as I said, probably the greatest cave diver of the time was Shaq Exley, and he died in a cave. So there's a big difference in taking a risk and taking a calculated risk Uh, because there there are so many things out there that you can put uh, a lot of thought into and you mitigate risk and i mean shoot every single person that listens to this does it every single day you you take a mitigate risk getting in your car and driving to work Mm -hmm. we do and in order to mitigate some of the risk of driving you put on a seatbelt. you drive a car with airbags you do the speed limit or you don't but you, you know what i mean those uh, calculated risks are part of our daily life and you just have to learn well you have to know your limits one and then two don't I would say don't push your limits but you have to understand what you're doing when you push your limits mm-hmm. and you think you need to understand when something just goes astray well I'll give you another example we're talking about Exley in his autobiography he's down diving he's in a cave 
Okay? He's 300 foot in depth. Okay? He's down 300 feet. He's by himself. He goes, and this is before computers, so it's all tables and pre-planned. <laughs> so, he goes to look at his watch. His watch isn't there. And he's, you're shaking your head. Yeah, I know. I know what you're I saying. Know the story. So his watch isn't there. He's like, you're like, oh crap, what am I going to do? So you know what the man did? He's like, okay, what do I have? I stopped and thought. He goes, I got my air. When I get up shallower to 150, there's there's people up there, but I got to do three or four stops on the way up to, off gas. Got a slate out. A little plastic slate with a pencil. And he started counting. 1,001, 1,002. If that's all I got. And, you know, took it until he got up. After that, yeah. he learned to dive with two watches. Now, I take that. I dive with two dive computers when I go get go out and do anything really serious. You know, that redundancy. Um, that's funny. The story you told mm -hmm. is how I knew he was a math teacher. If he wasn't a math teacher, he'd have been dead then. Yeah. It wasn't just doing the counting. He also had to do the math on how to get up, right? Oh, yeah. He so, was sitting there running math. and In the dark with a light. Yeah. I, yeah, exactly, dude. That, they talk about some of this like older stuff. Was it Chaz the other night? And he brought out an old camera. Oh yeah, like an old dive camera. I wish you, I should have asked you to bring that. That thing is awesome. I got all kinds of old stuff like that. Yeah. I got a lot of old scuba gear. I don't have anything. I'd love to have a brass helmet. Don't don't even get me started. But that's tons of money. But I've got some old double hose regulators. I have old gear in the back of that. You know, outside that I can show you just for decoration. Got an old old thirty five millimeter camera, got stuff off of Rex and that camera he's got is awesome. Mm -hmm. um, got lots of neat older stuff, but not super old. I even have a metal detector, an old metal detector. But what's even better about that is the guy I got the metal detector from. He had a magazine in his. And he's got it's in the magazine that I have the magazine too. That's pretty cool. There's some really neat old stuff that I've been collected, and nothing that really has tons of value. It's eclectic, cool stuff just to share and enjoy it. And I like that. Um, I think one of the coolest thing I've ever had, and it's in my living room actually, I don't know if you, I've showed you, it's a plowshare off a horse-drawn plow. The, the the blade that would cut. Oh, yeah. It's hand-forged, and it's got the, mar the proof marks and from the 1800s. Off, I found it off in upstate New York off the Erie Canal barge wreck. And just that was that's one of my prized things I found. You know, um, just interesting stuff. You were diving in the Erie Canal. Oh yeah, I. Let's see. I let me tell you. Let's see. Where have I dove? It was Black. um. It was actually in. It was wasn't the canal. It was part of it. It was um, in one of the Finger Lakes in Seneca, where okay. I found it. Okay. And they would bring the barges through that into that. But oh, I, I go diving sometimes in some of the muddiest stuff ever. But I, I grew up in, in muddy lakes and up there, so I you know I'm used to low visibility. So diving down here, I'll go in the lakes and do work for people. I'm not a big lake fan. I do like Dalhousie. It's one of my favorites to go diving in. You know, I was going to ask here. you about that lake. Dalhousie is, is great. It's a beautiful lake, and I know it's pretty dang deep, too. It gets about 30 foot. And I make my students, when I do my advanced training, I make them go. We take them, drop my boat. I have a 21-foot Key West. We drop it in there, and we go out and put the flags up and go out diving. And that way they have to get used to low visibility. And, you know, it's only 15, 20 feet. So it's not about being deep. It's about that lower viz and getting comfortable in that kind of environment. It also introduces them getting in and out of a small boat and how difficult that is. Yeah. And it's not, 
there's so much to learn. Especially you know? when you're a fat guy. Have you, such have you, a such a quality boat rent too, isn't it? Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Have you uh, have you ever tried to you know where Lake Ola is? Lake yes, I've been to Lake Ola. You ever dove in Lake Yep, me and my I'll buddy say, Mike Lando with his dad I'll off say, his we, dad's house. Me and William grew up on that lake and we always heard that there were some actually pretty cool places to Yeah, um do you know uh Henry Land, Captain Hook? Had one arm lost in Vietnam. He lives on Lake Ola. So. Yeah, he used to. Go, we, me, me and his son went diving out there. So there are some really nice lakes to go in. I oh, said so Lake Ola is really clean. Too. Yeah, it was. That's a nice one. Um, Gertrude to Mount Dora is really nice. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, Dalhousie is still one of my favorites. Um, What's some of the depths on Lake Ola? Mm, lake Ola probably I would think no more than thirty foot. You know, it's funny. You you talk about lakes. Everyone's always like, oh, there's got to be spring down there. Well, they go down and you hit a thermocline. And it gets cold, or you hit that cold spot. So, of course, we're from Florida. Oh, it's got to be a spring. That's where cold water comes from. <laughs> nope. It's just a thermal layer. If, excuse me, if these uh, lakes do have spring fed, I think they leach with water leaches through the sand bottom. Yeah. It's not like a flow, you know, or a magnitude spring. But, yeah. Yeah. You'd know if they were, well, not They're more like boils then. Yeah. It's not like a boil like Alexander or Blue Springs where that yeah. water is just pushing. I don't know if there's any lakes. I mean, about thirty feet's about as deep as you can get in a freshwater lake. If you get, yeah. if you you can get deeper in freshwater, but you're probably in the car system. You're in some sort of sinkhole or mm-hmm. yeah. cave system. About thirty is about as deep as you're gonna find for a lake in Florida. It's there's a, there's some neat ones. There's a they don't put in any of the dive books. Oh man. Okay, for those of you that are adventurous, but please be careful. Go start running around the pawn shops and find the really old versions of um, underwater Florida. Underwater book? Florida. Yep. Yeah, I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, but what 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 are you going to tell us about which one? Um, Devil's Sink. Devil's Sink. It's up. It's it's in the middle of nowhere. It's up somewhere in the Gainesville area. I've heard that name before. But well, there's there's Devil's Ear, Devil's Eye. Those are all part of a nice yeah, Jenny system. That's part of the Jenny system. Yeah. Devil's Sink is just a sinkhole. Just and it's it's big. It's probably 50 yards across and the directions used to be you know well drive out and when you get to the near the old oak tree turn left go down three sand lots and turn right and uh, my friend chris schwartz and i drove all the way up there we used to, man we got we used to have a copy of the 1950 geological survey and we went everywhere man we so anyway we found this place because it was in ned deloach oh so ned this guy did make this thing. We went out there. We found this, and we were out there in the middle of nowhere. And uh, this, you, you come down a pretty steep incline, and then it, there's like a limestone shelf. And we're looking down, and the water was probably twenty feet below the limestone shelf. And this is really kind of dumb on our part, because there was an old rickety wooden, like when I say wooden, made with logs, wooden ladder, that came out of the water back up to the limestone shelf. And then since we're out in the middle of nowhere, and it's hot as hell, um, as I recall, we just, like, stripped down, threw our, our wetsuits on with nothing on underneath, and we went diving. And it was pretty nasty and murky all the way down until you got, and it was probably 80 or 90 feet deep. I got a dive log on it I was looking at not long ago. But then all of a sudden it kind of clears up, and it's just full of trees and cars and motorcycles, and barrels, and my buddy goes over, and he, he um, there's cars that are upside down. We're expected to find bodies in these things. We didn't. There's no motorcycle down there. My buddy took the 
minutes to get the the cap off the tank, and all of a sudden, all the old gasoline that was in there came <laughs> like, oh man. So um, we came up. We actually we overstayed our welcome there too. We ended up doing a little deco stop, and then we come back up, and because um, we so got to climb up this ladder and we got all your dive gear, and the water was warm at the surface. So we take all our dive gear off and then get out of our wetsuits. And man, like 30 seconds after we get out of our wetsuits, this whole troop of toothless rednecks comes swinging down, man. Like, There's Jim, butt naked in the water. And here, here Chris <laughs> and I are butt naked in the water together with a bunch of gear, thank God. And uh, But the only thing we got to do is climb up that ladder. And we're thinking they're going to like harangue us. And, ah. no, not a word. Like, happens all the time. And... Uh, yeah, it was kind of the funny thing, but I, it was weird because I'd not been in any other sinkhole or stuff that the locals had just been using it as a, a garbage pit. And I'm sure that most of those cars and stuff were down there because, you know, they were stolen or oh, yeah. <laughs> used yeah. in some other nefarious yep. activity. Because it wasn't just like one or two. It was a bunch. So you ever so, dove uh, Blue Sink? I was fixing Oh, yeah. I've been there Which done one? that. Yes. It is only 30, 40 foot deep. No, there's no, it's not bottomless and there's no spring. Haven't found anything in there, but yeah, dove it years ago. Used to be on Google Maps, you could see a car or a van off to one side in there. Not that I ever remember, but if you could see it, that'd be cool. It, I never found it, so I'm sure. I'm sure Google Maps has updated since uh, mm-hmm. I was in high school. But we used to go out there and swim. That was back before there oh, was yeah. a parking lot and stuff. There. Oh yeah, there's yeah. a parking lot now. Yeah. Well, dang. Oh, yeah. You used to have to have full drive. You get stuck a in the shoot sand. here uh, in the last couple years or so they weren't even allowing people to go down there anymore but i think they reopened it to the public mm-hmm. again well there, there's a few places and i'm not going to name them because people died there's there's places in fairly metropolitan areas around here you ever been to the really deep sinkholes the cave in apopka uh Which no one? you know what i <laughs> haven't um the one the one that's in there's one in lake apopka no, there's a there's a cave in like off Rock Springs Road in Apopka. Apopka yeah, Blue. Apopka Blue. Yeah. And no, I haven't. Um, my buddy Jim Calvin, who, who used to know Underwater Adventures in Leesburg, he passed away here this last year. Great guy. He dove that, and he actually had to go. He was one of the ones that went in and recovered some people that went say, in there that shouldn't have went in there. I think my uncle, uh, my mom's brother, used to cave dive back in the day when he was a lot younger, and he actually dove it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He said it was pretty cool. It gets a real narrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's real a bedding silty. plane. Yeah. Real silty. And there's no place to turn around. So if you get. Yeah. So I shouldn't have been in there. No. No. But I got in there. Mm-hmm. After being told, like, actually by Herb Sugden, don't mm-hmm. go in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so many nice caves you, to you, go you, diving you, in. You, you have to back out. And you have to back out, and you've got no visibility. And the problem is, is you can get yourself in, but even though you've got your, you know, cave divers are really good about keeping all their gear really tight to their body. Um, you, you, backing out sucks. You can't see things. Your tank gets hung up on things, and you're, you're and, and, and the more you're trying to struggle to get out, just the worse you're making, the worse you're making um, the visibility. And then you finally get out, and you're like, I'll never go back in there again. And those are dumb. Th- you learn real fast. Mm-hmm. You talked about oh, earlier, saying about taking risks or mm-hmm. calculated risks and pushing the envelope. You know, we we did. And um, I'm very lucky f- for the handful of times that I did, quote, unquote, push the envelope. 
that, into good uh, training. I, people that told you too, and to help you. Yeah, sure. But training will take you so far. Yeah. Well, the training is the only thing that does save your life. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, you're, you're going to die. Um, and not that we want people to die, but yeah, that type of diving, you need training. That guy I was telling you about Chris Schwartz. He had a dive buddy whose name escapes him, but I used to. Um, when you hear the stories about the guy that got back in the cave and he died and he wrote on his dive slate, I love you, mom, dad, and his sister. And uh, that, was, that was when the, Chris and a fraternity brother named Barry Wilcox went to uh, went to high school with that kid. That is a real story. And he wanted himself back into a cave that had boulders. And he had a rope. But he, didn't, he wasn't cave training. He didn't do anything about tying off. So he had a rope going back in there. But what he didn't realize is as he was going back in, the rope popped the boulders. When I say, you know, it a, moved. He shifted. The rope, no, the boulder didn't. The, the rope, the rope did. shifted. To so a now spot he's got a rope going out. out, but he, but he, but he can't. But he doesn't know which way to go now, and he couldn't get himself out of the ground. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Didn't tie it. All right, so we got a little bit morbid. Let's get back into some of the some of the fun stuff. Yeah, man. You know, I'm sorry about that, and I hope you'll agree that. Anytime you get some divers, maybe they've been around a while, or haven't seen each in a while. That, that is something that you do drift into. It's 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 common, and, and I think maybe sometimes old divers will do that is to remind yourselves that you know it is serious business, but it doesn't have to be right. That's the that's the beautiful thing is you don't have to dive at 150 feet. In fact, the deeper you go, the less there is to see. You don't have to go into caves. You, it, there's no. all the really cool stuff at about 35, maybe 60 feet, 90 feet tops. You know, you're right. You know? And you're exactly right. And, you know, and I think we talk about some of that morbid stuff because we want to remember. We want to remember people. Like, I have a good friend of mine um, just passed away this past year. Um, Jim Calvin used to own Underwater Adventures in Leesburg. And, you know, we had a compete. We It's it so funny. I have a dive, I had a dive shop in Outdoor. He had a dive shop in Leesburg. We both lived in Umatilla. So we'd go to the mason jar and have breakfast, you know, and talk. And we're sitting there having breakfast one morning. And one of our customers that knew us, he goes, what are you two doing here? I'm like, well, we're price fixing. Leave us alone. <laughs> and Jim about choked. And just these funny things that, you know, it's funny. I mean, diving is such a small knit group in you know, we, we, we all know each other, you know, these different stores and every we all talk to each other. And I don't think people realize that, you know, and get along for the most part. And, you know, so when you see your competition together, it's really funny. But I miss him, you know. I just wanted to say, you know, shout out and just say, hey, you know, he's a good guy and I miss him. Um, and, you know, remember those people that, you know, around this area, you know, we talked about legends uh, about and these legends of diving. You know, I'd like to be remembered. I think, like, I think people remember Jim. He taught me how to dive, and, you know, he did this, and, you know, he, he helped me explore the, you know, just getting people to dive and, you know, go from there and teaching kids and yeah, those memories, you Talk, know? So it's great. Talking about legends, one uh, when, when I had a buddy getting certified years ago, and then I did a bunch of classes with this fellow. It was Rick Lormar. Yeah. Rick, Rick Lormar is now the, the CEO or chairman of Naui, and when I met him, he was basically working on the back of his pickup truck. Yeah. Right? So, um, but they, that is, it's a small community and they just stick together. And, you know, Rick was an Army Ranger and an Army Ranger instructor. So he's kind of, he was a great teacher. 
and it makes sense because he's pretty well wired. That doesn't surprise me. He's running an alley now. No, he's great at that. And yeah, you know Rick. Right? Yeah, I know Rick, and I've known him for years. Um, I, I want to get him on the show. He'd be great to have on the show. He um, has a lot of experience, a lot of great army stories. It's funny that you say that though. The best story I ever got from Rick is we got audited by the IRS. <laughs> 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 if you want to hear it, I'll tell it to you, because it's funny. I'll let Rick tell that oh, one. Oh, it's pretty Leave dang us good. Leave a little bit, but yeah, go ahead. It was really good. But, you know, there are so many people, and we have so much in common, and it just it, it just amazes me. Um, so I like my diving community. You know, it's really nice. So, you know, as much as you talk about the diving community as like this tight-knit group, to me, it really seems like diving can be a really good family activity. Oh, my gosh, yes. And you can start with snorkeling and move to diving as the kids get older. But, you know, um, I, my, my kids are teenage, teenagers, 19 to 20, so I have older kids now. But I started my kids diving when they were 10, each of them. You know, before that, I had them in the pool at 5 and 6, played in the pool. You know, and you have to teach your kids to do it right, and, you know, not so you, you don't want them getting hurt. And, you know, kids are going to be kids. So you've got to be on top of that. But what an amazing thing. When my kids were teenagers, at least we had that, you know, when they don't want to do anything. And, you know, I remember uh, my daughter was about 14. And we just, me and my ex-wife just got divorced. But that's beside the point. I picked her up and I set it up ahead of time and took her on a daddy-daughter date. And if any of you guys have had a 14-year-old, they don't want to do anything with their dad at all. So I picked her up. And she's like, well, where are we going? What she didn't know is her mother helped me. We had a bathing suit packed and, and everything she needed. I took her to Epcot. I said, mm. we're going to Epcot. And he's like, huh. And you say, Epcot? Why would you want to go to Epcot? This is diving related. Well, did you know that Epcot has the second largest aquarium in the world? The Living Seas. The Living Seas. And you can go diving and there was the backstage tour. So I took her diving. We, we went and went diving and... What's neat about the Living Seas is you're about 30, 20, 30 foot of water. It's about 70 degrees, so it's a little chilly, but they give you all the gear because it's in a contained environment. And we went in, and you guys, they have an eight-foot sand tiger shark. That's the shark with all the teeth hanging out of its mouth. Yeah. And those sharks swim a pattern. So you you get down to the bottom, and they'll swim right by you. Like, you know, there's a table between us right now. Imagine a shark swimming right, an eight-foot shark coming right between us. You'll be like... Oh, this is so cool. But you know what's even better about that? These are Disney sharks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're real, but, you know, they feed them a certain way. They've actually conditioned these sharks to not like to feel a neoprene. In that, When they get near neoprene, they got a tap on the nose. And sharks don't like that. It's a very sensitive area. You know, so they, they trained them that they don't like that. Um, actually, it was funny is the dolphins had to be kept in a separate pen because they go after the sharks and they were the aggressive ones. You know, <clears throat> but, I, yeah. as a guy that used to work out of Disney and did a little Disney diving over at Typhoon Lagoon, I am sure they tell that story about, oh, they tap them on the nose so they don't like neoprene. My guess is they they did nothing of the sort. They just feed them very well every morning. Oh, they probably did. <laughs> they, it, they come it, around, they literally will hand... They'll make they'll throw some stuff out there, but a lot of the sharks they have tongs and they feed them to make sure that each shark is well fed. Yes, so that you don't have oh, a yes. problem. You don't, and you know they don't. <laughs> that's a great but it story. Is funny. It's a great story. It's a great that's story. What they tell us so. Hey, yeah, that's no, what they tell we, us. T- we should make up all kinds but, of lies. 
but you know the stuff and, and then we went out to dinner but it was like my dad took me diving and now that she's older and has boyfriends you got to start teaching the boyfriends now how to dive and it's funny and it's i i love going diving with my kids you know and it's just like they don't dive as much as i do but they can just pick it up and then I'll give you another example my current wife we've been married five years well she was so funny. I take her snorkeling and we'd go scallop and she's like, I can't clear my ear. I can't clear my ear. I can't hear. And I'm like, you're so full. Of, you're so full of it. You can clear. You can go up in the airplane. I don't want to hear it. You're just telling me this because you don't want to die. He goes, but I do. So finally we figured out that she just had a big ball of wax in her ear. We got that taken care of. She goes, I can equalize. Let her try diving. And then she was being lazy. Wouldn't read the book. And I'm like, you need to do this. And we were just in Roatan this past summer. It was her first time outside diving in the ocean. She jumps off the boat and she's looking at, and I'd already was in the water. She's come, she jumps off, she pops up, she's looking at me. And I'm like, just look down. And she looks down and looks at the bottom and all the coral, looks at me. She goes, okay, I'm ready to go now. <laughs> and my wife is cautious, but she went from a novice diver to just like a junkie in like two days. She was loving it and just went to did a wreck dive at a hundred foot. Did a dive where we do we actually dove with sharks and they fed the sharks. So we got to watch that. Did a night dive. Just did all these things that are just not, you know, as you progress and just at ease and comfort in the water. And just, she, she came home and she's like, dad, I was born to dive. That's what she told her dad. So, you know, my whole family dives. And it's it's very much a lifestyle. And I can't begin to tell you the families in this community that dive. And the, and the kids, the parents, the grandkids. It's, you I know. See, the, the community itself seems like a family. Oh, it is. It is. You know, if it you, really if, is. If you start diving and you start running... The boats like out of Jupiter or West Palm and, and, and Fort Lauderdale. There's, there's there's not that many. At least there wasn't. There's um, probably ten or fifteen, but still. You yeah. see, there's more now than there was then. Yeah. But you get to know the captains, and then you start, and they all know one another, and they share. You know, all the, um, a lot of the dive masters work different boats, but you do. You start seeing the same people all the time, and you do. You, you foster friendships, and then you start doing things outside of mm-hmm. it. It's uh, it's really cool. And it doesn't matter really. There's some. There really is something for everybody in diving. If you're a photographer, endless cool stuff to take pictures of. If you like that series, that spirit of adventure, that's kind of built into everything. Um, but if you if you want to climb mountains, you can do the same thing in reverse. You just go deep. If you sure. if you're a hunter, whew, you know I, I get excited thinking about it. I, I'm wondering why I don't do more of it. Um, and, and earlier I referred to it as being an addiction. That's probably why, you know, cause you, you can get really carried away. Like you can, I get at one point where I had so many lobsters, I was eating them for breakfast. I had to get up in the morning and grill lobsters. <laughs> I remember one day I was sitting in a couch, like eating a lobster, like just lobster and a piece of bread and eating this lobster because lobster's awesome. Right. And one day I'm also like, you know what? I don't like lobster anymore. I'll eat it now. But I'm not kidding when I said I used to eat lobster every day, right? And you can, and I was never chasing big fish. I'm the same way as a hunt, like squirrel hunt. But man, you get on a pile of grunts, whack, 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 
you know, hogfish, you pull a bunch of those, uh, you shoot, you get out, you get on a bunch of snapper and you know, they're, they're kind of fast and they'll, they'll tend to hug the reef. But once you get good with a spear gun, man, it's, it, you sh- it's dong, pull the fish off, put on your thing, reload, dong, pull you off, you know, pull the fish off, put on your stringer, reload, dong, and you, see, you got nine snapper, a couple of hogfish. No, you only had five snapper, okay? You don't want to be over the bag limit. I don't know. <laughs> I can't remember, but I just, we used to shoot the bejesus out of small fish. When I say small, I don't mean like pint size. Right. Right. You know, some of, some, some of them, some of like some of the mangrove snapper be pretty big. You know, you get on those and, and, the, and if you get on a hog snapper, they'd be big. Not a hog. Well, some of the hogs, um, mutton snapper. But we got to talk about something else here. You guys, you guys don't maybe not know about. And that is everything underwater looks larger and closer. Yeah. yeah. So that fish that you see that looks 24 inches, he's only 18. So when you need to see, shoot a legal 24 inch grouper, you're looking for one that looks 36 inches, and he's going to be big enough. And that's hard to do. To judge, you got to judge that size. And the distance, as you get, as you get closer, that that size will change. And you got to judge judge for that, and you got to judge that in your shot. You know, I'm going to use yeah. that my tip. I was going to say I was going to I'm going to save it for my tip of the week. Tip of the week. I got something for spear fishermen. Oh yeah, hey, we have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so. Man, we we've been at this for about an hour and a half. So tell me some of your favorite uh, favorite dive stories, spear fishing, just diving in general. Favorite dive stories. Got so many of them. Just trying to think. Well, you know, one of the things I like is I like you know I teach, so I teach new students, and I love to see new people excel and grow, and just and see that. I I really do like that. You know, so that's been neat. But his favorite dive stories. Um, tell me about your first fish you got spearfishing. First fish spearfishing. When, when when did the addiction start? The addiction started when um I enjoyed spearfishing, but I st- I went on a trip to the Dry Tortugas, and that's all we did. Spearfished for four days. Lived stayed in the boat. That's all we did. Six dives a day spearfishing. Live aboard trip. Yes, and. You know, my first one, it did okay. Got some decent fish, okay? But I was watching some of these guys and the way they're hunting. And I'm like, wait a minute. There's a heck of a lot more than what I'm doing. And it's funny because now when I spearfish, I'm doing stuff that most people don't. Like I'll start, I, I free shaft now, which I never, back then I never did that. So I would, you know, shoot. Um, I shoot now. I'll take a shot at 20 feet away. It, with a free shaft, it means I'm going to have to go catch that grouper if I shoot him. That's that's the only way I'm going to get that shot now because a line slows the gun down, but then you can retreat the fish easier. So that that was a big game changer. The biggest fish, though, I ever got, my best story, got a 57-pound black grouper. Ooh, 57 pounds is a big fish. So that is probably one of the best stories. So I saw him. I shot him. I hit him. He swam in it. He swam. He actually swam in under a rock, and he broke my spear shaft, the back end of my spear shaft, and the shaft came out of him. I'm like, crap. Okay, so I, my gun had a um, second shaft, so I reloaded. Okay, in the process, one of my buddies takes a shot and misses him, and he sw- or hits him, and he swims under a rock and swims 
swims out, swims in another rock, and then I get it. The, I get the second shot on him, and I put it. I put it in and got him in the gills and got him. And I'm like, oh my god, you know. And I really got to appreciate that I had help from other people, but shooting a 57 pound sh- fish. I mean, a spear shaft is five sixteenths inch stainless steel. He broke it. Yeah, can you imagine the strength of that fish? Yeah. You don't realize, you know, these monster fish have that kind of strength. And, you know, my average fish, like going out in the Gulf spear fishing, I'm shooting anywhere from 28 to 32 inch gags. And that's good sized fish. You know, that's inches. I don't know how, I never really weighed them, but 57 pound black is as tall as me. And I'm 5'10. You know, so it's a big fish. Um, they're powerful, but that was exciting. Um, you ate well. You ate well for some time. Oh, we did. Dish. Oh, we did. The it's funny. You talk about grouper cheeks. The grouper cheeks were like six inches around, like that, like Oof. a good sized steak, in you know about an inch and a half, inch thick or better. I take it you enjoy sushi. Oh, uh, you know what I do, mm. but the the stupidest thing I've ever had for sushi is hogfish, just raw hogfish with hogfish is even better. But the, the the best fish, the newest best fish I've had is this lionfish. Yeah. That's some dang good eating. They are even better than hogfish. Hogfish is the best. Lionfish is right there with it. Then grouper. Then snapper. I have a pecking order down the way. Uh, I actually do. That just bring me up a good story, though. Um, we were down to dry church because, like I said, and I had shot a margate. Big old margate. Really beautiful. Nice fish. But it's not the greatest eating fish, right? It's okay, you know? If I broke fried it, you'd never know what you were eating. You'd just be like, oh, this is great, you know? So I shot it. And that night, after we, we came in, into the fort, there's a fort down there. And then we came in, and we're stopped there. The captain's asleep. We've already had dinner. We're drinking beer. And fishing game, and they're doing a boat check. They come by, and they're like, okay, the mate's handling them. And they're, like, checking the thing. Like, who shot a Margie? I said, I did, sir. He's holding my beer, and he's like, he's looking at me. He said, yeah, haven't you ever heard of a mother-in-law fish? He's looking at me and like, what the hell? And I'm like, yeah, my mother-in-law is fish, so I give her the crap fish when we get home. He goes, never mind. We'll see you guys later. Nah, I used to shoot margates. Anytime, <laughs> they could, most time you see a margate in a reef, it's only a you know, little rinky-dink fish, and it's it's almost all head, but they get big. Mm-hmm. Whenever I'd see, and they, they because a lot of people wouldn't shoot them, man, they'd come lumbering up to me. Whack! You know, on a stringer, man. Fish of opportunity, yeah. But, yeah. you know, you, you know, here's something interesting. You talk about fish. You know, when was the last time you went and had a grouper sandwich at a restaurant? Chances are, if you have, you haven't. Yeah, exactly. A friend of mine works for uh, Fish and Game here locally, but he said their um, lab in Tampa, they went out just for a test. They said they went out and they would go get groupers, take a piece of grouper from their sandwich or whatever they had. And they take it back to the lab and tagged it and tested it and DNA tested it. It wasn't grouper they were eating. No, oh, I don't. Oh know yeah, it, 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 you know we we see that a lot. You know, Hooters used to have on their menu Grouper's cousin sandwich. People open the Grouper sandwich all the time. Like it says right on the menu, Grouper's cousin. It ain't Grouper. <laughs> it's probably tilapia. Probably. <clears throat> But yeah, man, you can talk about that crap all day, man. It's uh, mm-hmm. listen, a lot uh, of great stories. I had asked about fishing. it earlier, and I know I want to hear it. Your knee? Oh, my knee. 
Okay, it, it was. It, I wasn't diving at the time, but it was a boating thing, and so I guess it, it's fine. Yes, uh, I hurt my knee about ten years ago now. Um, we were out in Lake Dalhousie. We talked about that earlier. Loved Lake Dalhousie. We were out tubing for the day with the kids, and my ex-wife, and it's not because <laughs> it has nothing to do with that. Um, she thought the boat was in neutral and the engine was idling, and it was in a slow idle reverse, and she come by us to pick us up off the tube and i had a life jacket on my son had it he's behind me on my shoulders trying to dunk me just out on a nice september day just screwing around on the weekend and i was gonna get back in the boat and i got hit with that boat prop in my knee Mm -hmm. my right knee um so we were talking about earlier from decompression sickness that i may not know but yeah so i got hit with the boat prop with the right knee and i'm like I just remember it would have come back and hit my son next and could have kept on hitting me. I only had one hit and I was really lucky. And I'm like, I just remember screaming top of my lungs, shut it off. And our boat at the time was really hard to start. And that's why she left it running. It's really hard to start. But, and she shut off as a new, and said, no, it wasn't in neutral. And I'm like, I just sat there and floated for a second. And I'm thinking. You're like you didn't bleed out. It, it, what's funny, though, is, is I did have a bleeder later. I had a bleeder at the hospital that shot across the room. But it was it was so quick. It wasn't even started bleeding. And she's like, th- then you stop and think these accidents happen in like split second. Like, crap. She goes, are you? And I took a second to calm down. I'm like, yeah, it hurt. But it, I, I, I wasn't even thinking it was cut or open. It felt like someone hit me in the kneecap with a hammer. Ooh. So we talk about staying away from broke props. Yeah, they're dangerous. Okay. So I, I yeah. cut the I cut the top of my foot on my boat prop, just cleaning it from salt water, and just being careless and you're kind of cutting a corner. <laughs> yeah. And and should have gotten stitches. And I can't imagine like uh, under power. Yeah. <laughs> if you'd like to see, I have pictures. I'll no, show you right. later. If but I gotta warn you. But yeah. So I'm like. She's like, how are you going to get? I'm like, you got to get in the boat. I can't get you in the boat. I'm 200 pounds. There was four or five people, but they're like, we can't get you in the boat. I'm like, what do we do? And it it, it, it hit her in a second. Like, oh, shit. Sorry about that. Yeah, anyway. Okay. No, uh, yes. So I was able to still use my, climbed up on my good knee, got in the ladder and just threw myself and laid in the floor of the boat. And my niece was about 15 at the time. Like, so she's like, go down there and get the first aid kit out of the boat. And I'm like, she goes, I can't find it. But here. Here's a maxi pad from the Shark Week kit, you know, for the girls. I'm like, really? And that's what they slapped on my knee. That was the first thing, and it worked great because, you know, and I looked when I came over the side. I'm like, you could see it was all open and just like, oh, there goes my dive. I was going to go dive in the next day. I'm like, there goes that. I'm like, I was more pissed about that. <laughs> but, you know, once I – it was funny. So once I calmed down, and then, then we're like, oh, got to get the boat on the trailer. What are we going to leave the boat? What do you do? What we should have done is left the boat, and we could have called people. Seto would have come and got it. I have enough friends that would have come, got the boat, and you know we had all the kids with us. And I'm like, what do you got to go? So we got. So I'm like, all right, we get everybody back in the boat. We get the boat in the trailer, and I'm still, I'm not bleeding bad. They got it wrapped up, and I'm not looking at it. So we uh, go back from Lake Delhi to the house. I'm in Umatilla, drive to the house. Well, my wife couldn't back the damn boat back up, and I'm like, screw it, I'll do it. Give me, I'm, I'm like using my left leg with the, with the back of the boat up. So I'm like, while we're going to the hospital, I know you need stitches. Got to get it looked at. I'm like, okay, well, let's go in. I got some socks because the emergency room was always cold and I don't want to got out of my wet clothes. 
Then we went to McDonald's because I knew it was going to be hungry. <laughs> <West got food. laughs> they went to the emergency room. Friends of you ours. weren't hurt. Oh, friends of ours met us there. Well, I met there. I've eaten. I'm sitting there in my soda just waiting. I took a phone call. And the next thing I know, I'm rolling around on the floor about ready to kill. Dying. The adrenaline wore off. I was so going. Once I relaxed enough that I, okay, we made it to the emergency room. I'm good. The adrenaline was gone. And, oh, I was miserable. They couldn't give me enough pain med. I didn't want pills. I'm like, I need shots. And it's funny. My ex-wife's a nurse there. and She's telling me, you got to give him something. And she's yelling at me, get off the floor. I said, I F the floor. I don't care what's on this emergency room floor. You got to do something. It was miserable. But I ended up having a torn patella tendon and just, it was rough. Yeah. Mm. The surgery to fix it in one hit, you know, it just. It wasn't key. even under a lot. It was just at an idol. An idol, just barely an idol. But see, the, you know, she came by us, you know, and she threw it back when she thought neutral was slow reverse. And I didn't catch the boat pushing back on us. But it was aimed and it would have come right. It would have pushed me under and pulled my son next and just you know the boat would come pushed right on top of us yeah jeez it's fortunate yeah, that that's it, all you had yeah. was, was your knee but you know what's funny is a diver you know when we pick up so when we're out diving off small boats and we come into the boat you have a mask on you can see that prop you check that prop you know and you make sure it's in neutral and you know so i do a lot of small boat diving when people dive off my boat and when one of the things when I'm diving, someone else is up and running the boat. I said, before we get on, you make sure you kick that motor away from us. You know, kick that kick that thing away. Make sure it's in neutral. And if you're the diver, you make sure that prop ain't spinning. You know? And if you, because, I don't know. You guys tell me. You're out 20, 30 miles offshore. I don't like shutting the engine down. It's running smooth. You leave it alone. Don't know. You know? But you know, a lot of these boats don't have a have a hard neutral stop where you got to push the button; they just click. It doesn't take much, you know. So you got to know know your boat too. So you know, accidents happen in the blink of an eye. Yep. Yep. I'm glad you're you're you're, you're very fortunate. Mm. You're very fortunate because even at idle, those those props are turning pretty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You you. Yeah. It's... You probably caught what like a thirty second of a prop because if you'd been much deeper, you probably would have been. Yeah. Oh yeah, really it was been bad. really been bad. Hmm. So, man, the whole the whole podcast, death, destruction, <laughs> dying slowly <laughs> in caves. That's but right. You know we I, shoot fish. Yeah. That's it, right. We're I think it goes fish. back to to having a, a healthy respect for something, right? Because Absolutely. it can be an absolute blast, but you you need to understand that you need to have a healthy respect for it. Absolutely, you you guys. I mean, um, you guys. <laughs> Go out hunting. I mean, look at the gun safety we have to go through. The bow and arrow safety. I mean, we've all seen movies like, "Hey, let's shoot an let's shoot an arrow up in the air and see where it comes down, y'all." I mean, come on, we we've seen all that, and it happens. Um, I just saw. Um, you want to talk about gore? I just saw. This no, we're no, done with we're gore. done with that. Good. Okay, then we <laughs> well, won't let's go keep into on that. Ha- happy, happy times. Happy times. But um, you know, I happy times diving. You know, the camaraderie, the, the times I can say my dad, me and my dad went, went scuba diving and did something. Um, we used to go, he took me the first time out of the country when I was 12, he took me to Honduras. And we went diving in Honduras and um, just a foreign country. I got to fly on a old World War II DC-3 and land on a gravel strip in this island. I mean, it was some amazing, amazing adventures. I got to go to Brazil when I was 15. 
you know, by the time I was 12 years old, I was at diving Blue Springs, Northern City. You know, I got to go dive in, in the Great Lakes up and do some awesome wreck dives. Um, go dove off the coast of California, um, head into Africa to go diving in the Indian Ocean. So that I'm looking forward to that here in November. So it's been, you know, something that, you know, I've had all my life and I really look back now and really have enjoyed it. It's a great thing, like hunting. You'll see places that other people wouldn't go, right? Because it's not necessarily the typical tourist destination. And you'll see it different, too. Yeah. You'll get a different view. Plus, it's, there's something cool about diving. You <clears throat> usually start off early in the morning. You might do two dives or maybe even take a break, come back, do four. But you've you've just kind of touched it all, man. You've got your exercise in. You've had a great adventure. Hopefully, you got some decent food if you're harvesting. And you every never gets boring. Mm. Scenery is always changing. It's a whole different world under the water. Yep. I, just, I need to get back into it. Either a different world. You just touched on something that I just forgot to tell you. You get to unplug. No phone. Yeah. You know, and it's like. It, it, and I, I used to joke about this all the time. Everybody's like, you know, they have comm systems. You can talk in the water. I said, I don't want that. They're like, why not? Wouldn't it be nice? I'm like, heck no. Would you like to listen to your husband or wife bitch you underwater? <laughs> <laughs> but no, in all seriousness, it's like, I don't. I don't. I, I like that. The unplug. I like that peace and serenity. The silence. Um, the silence. Like, you know, yeah. if, when I'm at home or I'm working, I'm like, go, go, go. But when it's time to go diving, it's like, no, we're gonna slow down. We're gonna do this. We're off the clock. We're off that that time clock. That that pace that we keep. It's time to slow it down, and that is nice. That is relaxing. Well, we are at a, about an hour and forty minutes now, so we'll go ahead and dive into the tip of the week. And I know we kind of oh. briefly touched on that earlier. Um, and I know I got one. I wrote oh. it down earlier. Oh, so, I have one too. Oh well, perfect. Oh, you ready? You, Tip Jordan, of the week. Yeah, I got one. All right, what you, what you got? Mine is there's two types of divers in this world. There's those that pee in their wetsuit and those that lie about it. <laughs> That's what I got. Because we were talking about that today. With <laughs> Don't be students. afraid to pee in your wetsuit. Once you've peed in your wetsuit and it just never ever comes out, you get to the point where you don't pee in your wetsuit anymore. See, get, I told you he's there? lying about it. <laughs> no, 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 man. I'm not. No, I've done it, right? But after a while, it's like, no, no, I'm peeing before I put this thing on, and I, I'm just not peeing because it just oh. just gets stuck in there. Oh, it does. But you yeah, gotta I, say, I talk, you gotta hose it out and rinse yeah. it. That's I talked awesome. to uh, I talked to Chad on the phone last night when he was saying he, he probably wasn't gonna make it, and he's like, "Man, if I do make it, I'm probably gonna smell like pee and gasoline." <laughs> yeah, so this this is that's actually a pretty funny story. You were supposed to be here last night, but you were Yeah, so one of my side things is I help recover boats for Cito and do a sal- light salvage work and put airbags. So I had to go recover a boat and get it flipped over and put airbags on it and there was gasoline coming out and had to sw- actually swam through it before I realized cuz it's funny, it doesn't look, you can't really see that good in the lake underwater, but you could see it, like it looked like bubbles. I'm like, there shouldn't be bubbles, and it was the, ga- it was the gasoline <sighs> coming up. 
and the gasoline's lighter, so it all wants to go to the surface. And it's changing light is how you see yes, it. Yes. Yeah. It was something it was interesting. It just but yeah, I was covered in it burned my face for a while. It's not fun. So So I'm gonna say uh get out of your comfort zone. Whether it you know, if uh being scared of um uh, being alone in the woods is keeping you from hunting or uh, just thinking that uh, I mean I think at some point in all hunters career we we have a semi-legitimate fear of coyotes (laughs) (laughs) and because you you know when you go in the woods in the dark I mean it's a different environment you are not we're not designed to see at night like that that we're we're a daytime predator so you know you go into the woods and you have a flashlight that's great well you look and you see eyes Bigfoot. No, you wonder, you know, what eyes are those? I mean, I've been walking, following bright eyes. I'm like, oh, there's there's a double bright eye on the tree. The tree stands in. Sweet, that's my tree stand. And then uh, the bright eyes disappear and they reappear. And then when that, even talking about it, the hair on my neck standing up, thinking about it, because at that point you realize, oh shit, that's not a tree. Is that it depth down and comes back up? Yeah. (laughs) And then you start to want you realize, um, that's an animal of some kind. Most of the time, it's a deer. And they let you know they're there by running away and blowing at you. And yeah. you still feel like an idiot. But get out of your comfort zone, man. Just take a step. Take that calculated risk and do something outside of your comfort zone. Because once you do, your comfort zone expands. And you you experience things that you wouldn't otherwise experience. I want to say, uh, man, whether it be diving, boating, hunting, fishing... Always double check your gear, right? Because there's safety that comes along with all that stuff. And even, you know, it doesn't even come down to a safety thing. If you're fishing and you're not double checking line, you got a nick in your line or something, you hook into a big fish and boom, it's gone. Right? But especially from tonight, I'm kind of double down on your gear, check everything because that could be, you know, whether you come home or not. Keep calm and problem solve. Mm-hmm. Think about what you have and what do you have that can fix a problem. And fix little problems before they become big problems. You know? And yeah. that's huge. Avoid panic at all costs. You know? And, and, and I think that's good across the board. You know? Yeah. Across the board. Whatever it is we're doing. Jim, what do you got? Mine's a little more technical for those that might want to Maybe they've done a little spearfishing, <clears throat> or they think it, it's something they might want to get into. But it's where to shoot the fish. Um, so the first thing you have to know is know your spear gun. And an easy way to do that is to just take a little sponge, um, put a string through it, and then drop a weight on the bottom, get into some pool, and figure out what the dead drop is for your spear. So when you're looking straight down the shaft, you know where it's going to hit. And you can use the sponge to target and figure that out. And once you know that, and here's where the tip really starts, on almost every fish, if you, in your mind, consider where the front of the top dorsal fin starts, thinking from the head, right? Where the dorsal fin, if you draw a line straight down through the body uh, from the front of the dorsal fin, and then you find the eye and you draw line in your mind straight back to where those intersect if you hit the fish there most of the time you turn them off like a switch and that's 
I'm assuming yeah, you, about just, what you do. Just behind if you the plate. If you want to learn how, to, if you want to learn a, what he's calling free shaft, where the fish doesn't really swim off, that's that's really important. And like any other kind of hunting, you aim small, miss small, because you, you really you can't free shaft, especially free shaft on big fish, and just hit them in the body, or or sometimes even hit them in the gills because they'll <laughs> they're gone. gonna go. Yeah, but it is neat. There's for a spear fisherman, that that's that's kind of a big deal. Is like when you're you got that fish cruising by and you let that sucker go whack. And it just stops and just drops to the bottom. Boom! You're like, just hit your brain, like, call it your brain them. That's what we call it. I don't know if that's actually where the brain is, but You're it's a big the spot cord. in the river spot. You're hitting yeah. the spinal cord, yeah. And, you know, you say that, and so many people ask me, well, how do you shoot? How do you aim? I'm like, I don't know. I just do it. It's totally like it's, yeah, it, it's totally instinctive to me now to, 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 to lead the shot, shot placement, and I'm not perfect perfect but i'm pretty i'd like to say i'm pretty good I, I can hold my own i can show you pictures of stuff i've shot but yeah you're right it's that, that that's a you know like it, it just took practice like anything else and the shooters say oh it, it's not that because i've done it man yeah you know, it's you're out there and you're shooting and then all of a sudden a nice fish stops swings by you lose all the discipline and you center punch that thing right through the fillets it's like shooting a deer in the backstrap, man. It's like, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think it goes so without saying. Shoot. You got to learn to shoot. I think it goes without saying, but don't practice with your spear gun in your above ground pool. No, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, he was telling us about that, dude. Don't, don't do that. You know, I'll tell you what. Once a spear gun with one heavy band will blow through a piece of plywood like it's nothing. It'll go through this piece of wood like it's nothing. <sighs> that, 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 that has so much weight behind it it just goes through wood like you wouldn't believe yeah in in my tip of the day if you're gonna practice in your pool figure out how long the leash on your spear is and make sure that that the leash is going to stop before it hits your pool yes (laughs) oh yes i'm pretty sure it'll go right through whatever the gunite yeah the gun it'll it'll pound (laughs) a hole right through it yeah yeah your wife is not going to be happy with you (laughs) well chad before we let you go i mean we've got a lot of local listeners and if they're interested in uh having you certify them how can they find you um, they can find me on CFL Scuba Repair is the name of my, my, my business or my shop. Uh, they can find me on Facebook, um, Instagram, all those good social media sites, Chad Patterson. Um, but, you know, the amazing thing, I love this and I see it all the time. Um, people are like, oh, I'm interested in scuba diving. Who, who do you, does anybody have any recommendations? And I, I just watch my name pop up three or four times on these lists, you know, especially local. And usually when I see it, I'll just say send the person a message, and because I don't advertise, everything I do is word of mouth. Um, and you know, I love my local area. It's been really nice. Been good, good people. They've been good to me. So yeah. So for some of our listeners that are way too far away, all right, let's give them. A, you want? Let's give them my phone number then. Yeah. <laughs> my phone number. Every it's on the internet. Everyone else has it. You know, three five two. Four zero nine eleven eighteen, or you can just call Under Pressure Outdoors, and they will get you in touch with me. You can send them yeah, a you, message. You I don't know a, how that works. You you can send some message on Facebook, yeah, Instagram, email Under Pressure Outdoors at Gmail or uh, TikTok for that matter. Mm-hmm. We're all over that too, and we'll get you in contact with Chad. Yeah, and so all you young fellows get used to sleeping in the back of your car if you can't spear fishing. <laughs> And getting up at four in the morning and be ready. I don't yeah. mean sleeping in your car. I mean pretty much living in it because mm-hmm. you yeah. can't afford rent. 
Nope. It's an addiction like hunting anything else. It's great. Every young man should be so broke that they can hardly they're, that they're making decisions about food or dive gear at least once in their life. But before we let you go, you still need to buy your crawfish boil tickets. Yeah, they're more important than dive Talk gear. to me about this crawfish boil. May 7th. May 7th. Yeah, we're having our second annual crawfish boil. We actually just got a box in the mail the other day in first light with some sweet stuff in it. Oh, yeah. Uh, where is crawfish boil going to be held? Riverbend Park in the Sweetwater Oak subdivision right off the Wakaver River. So for those of you with boats, uh, it is possible to access. Well, you can't drive all the way up into the park, but you can come up the Wakaver River and drop anchor or tie up to the shore or walk in. So it's a little semi-mud semi run. Make a sweet run out of it, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but the address is on the ticket. Right, address is on the website. Yeah, it's all, so it's on the Eventbrite link, yeah. or you can also find it on the the Facebook. Uh, oh Lord of Mercy, the okay. Facebook event. There it yeah. is. <laughs> yeah, so those if you really want to, you can come to Crawfish Bowl, walk about maybe fifty yards, and dunk yourself in the archive if you want. Very so, cool. So it's gonna be a good time. This is our second annual one. So send old. Cajun and back up to Louisiana to pick up some crawfish and bring them down here and boil them up and quite uh, the opposite of what you may have seen on Facebook the last couple of days. We do put seasoning on everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it like, goes who into was boil. that dude, man? I was like, what are you talking about? If you ever to throw spice on your can crawfish after you pull them out the pot, you done it wrong. That's man. my question. Well, I mean, like, you're you know, canned, you're, not, you're not eating the shell. So what is the point in the spice going on the shell? I, when I licking your fingers. When I saw that that Facebook video that I shared to Under Pressure Outdoors Nation today, which you can also find a link to join the Facebook group. When I shared that to that group, that was the first thing I thought of when when they're like, "We can't see the seasoning," and they're just dumping seasoning into the uh, like cooler cooler full of crawfish and mustard and all kinds of other crap. But yeah, we don't uh, do that. I thought she it was said really we ironic put the seasoning in the water. Yeah, <laughs> I did click on that feller's link just to see if, like he was a we had common friends or whatever. And like, he don't, we don't, but you know, guy works at Bahama Breeze, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he does yeah. go to UCF though, Jim. So yeah. well, there you go. <laughs> um, that's your people, Jim. So yeah. how, how much are these crawfish bottle tickets? Twenty three, twenty three bucks. bucks. That's a deal. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. a nice deal, and all you can eat crawfish, right? I mean, it's this, all you can eat. The way so, we, yeah, the way we kind of math it out is, uh, we try to work with about four pounds per person, because you know there's a lot of people that can eat more than four pounds. Oh, sure, but your, your average person that's going to come there and doesn't generally eat crawfish but, that often. But you know, I have a more important question about this. What about beer? How much beer does that come with for that ticket? So that's a good question. Yeah, yeah, that's a real good question. Well, there's rules obviously around beer distribution. Well, sure, it's free, but. Uh, we may have beer. Um, you can always bring your we, own. Yeah. Um, okay. We, if it is sold, it would be sold through charity because they don't need the liquor license. Mm-hmm. And 100% of the proceeds from beer sales would go to support 10CAN, which is a fantastic organization that works with veterans and first responders that are suffering from PTSD. So, but I did most not likely know this. it's BYOB. Unless, yeah. we're, I, I got to get back in touch with Chris Conner over at... Uh, Little Kyver. Little Kyver Brewery, he had talked about donating a keg or two, but I think he's worried about making sure that we're following beer distribution rules because it's, it's no, real. No, that's right. understandable. Yeah. No, yeah. sure. Well, you got to cover too. your butt. Yeah, yeah. It's a big yeah. deal. So, Tin Can is actually uh, the Christian Outdoor Network. So, not only do they uh, do all the stuff for the veterans and first responders and everything, but they're a Christian organization. Nice. Yeah. 
No, it sounds like it's going to be a great event. So we had 85 people show up last year, and whoever wanted to take home crawfish got to take home crawfish. We, yeah. we That's had a lot of crawfish. We 165 pounds. Yeah, that was a lot. That's a lot of crawfish. Yeah. We... we we ate crawfish to to a point of genuinely being disgusting. The they, last they time were, I got some, I ate a third of a sack, and I was like stuffed. Yeah, and there there were people popping up on the Under Pressure Outdoors Nation Nation page, uh, making crawfish omelets. Yeah, and everything else days after the event. That, that took sounds on some good. Crawfish. Yeah, it? I've had a lobster omelet. Cool? That sounds great. Oh. You have said the said these coming again. Say again. Sid from um, Sid. So, uh, from what I've discussed with Ten Can, I think Sid is actually going to be our uh, representative for Ten Can. Sweet. So wait, I'm thinking Sid from Fast Duck. Yes. Yeah, Sid Tyson. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah, nice. So that so, so Sid will probably be the one that will will be there uh, for Ten Can. Awesome. Because Sid does all their Sid does a lot of their gator hunts and stuff with him. He he does some guiding with him. So I think we're gonna do a couple of Yeti buckets. Of what we discussed, full of stuff. Yeah, yep. And we have some and other companies that are working with us too. Uh, First Light sent us a gear. Uh, 4S Wildlife Solutions. I got to go up there in Georgia and uh, pick up some stuff from them. Am I allowed to donate something? Absolutely, Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Man, All right, yeah. consider it done. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll take whatever we can get. I mean, we're not keeping any money from any of the raffles, none of that stuff, and we really don't make much on your ticket sales because. Lord knows gas is oh, through the freaking roof right now. Yeah, but no, if everyone uh, puts in a little bit, we get so much more out of it. Right. And you always want to go do stuff like that. It's just it's part of your community, part of your family. Yeah. No, the reason yep, we definitely. the reason we the only reason we sell tickets is so that we don't lose our and we're gonna lose money anyway, most likely. But the question is we don't like have to lose our ass. Tell our wife that sorry, you know. <laughs> electricity might not get paid next month. <laughs> but it is about the camaraderie. You know, because oh, what, we, what we're really doing is a volunteer effort. But and people ask us all the time, "How come we don't form a charity of our own?" It's like because there's so many great networks that do other things. That who knows, we may do that um, to be able to focus on some other efforts. But it's really nice to be able to help. And we've we've fundraised for fundraised fundraised, God knows how much money for BHA, uh, thousands of dollars for Ducks Unlimited. We did um, Operation, Operation Outdoor, Outdoor Freedom. Freedom. Yeah. Um, now we're supporting Ten Can. I feel like I'm missing one. You know, we, you know, we really got to get hold of the Forest Service because um, I guess Florida BHA is just abandoning the idea of doing gobblers or garbage because it's too much work. But if we can get with um, forestry about when they're doing their big cleanup this year, I really would love to do at least a one-day cleanup, some kind of event, keep that going. Uh, in addition to our duck box build, we still have to see. There's a lot of stuff we got going on. But uh, it's a labor of love. We're happy to do it. No, and giving back, when you enjoy something, giving back is key. And it's important. That's nice. It's fun. Uh, we, if we didn't enjoy it, we we wouldn't be doing it. Uh, but, you know, we host a lot of events throughout the year, and we usually only host one or two actual paid events. I mean, I guess you could count the Swanee River trip coming up here. Oh, man, like yeah. Three days after the boil as a quote-unquote paid event, but you, you really don't have to pay to do that other than the fee that it takes to have you brought back to your vehicle uh, unless you want to stay in the cabin with us the one night, which that was, what, 50 bucks? It's 50 bucks uh, for a cabin. So every night that we're on the, on the Swanee, 
except for the nights that were in the cabins, were being uh, fully inc- screened in enclosures. Um, Chad, this is right up your alley, I think, man. No, you can even bring your tanks if you want. That's worth every penny. Yeah. Um, screened in enclosure in Florida in the summer? Yeah. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Yep. Nope. Running, running water, ability to take showers, all that good stuff. So it's a, it is, it's, it's interesting because when you're out on the river, it is very much a, um, for lack of a term, a wilderness thing. You got to be careful. I mean, you screw yourself up out there. You could really, right. You could, you could go bad in a hurry, but you know, you're going to spend five days cruising down one of the last natural rivers, one of the last wild rivers, no dams or anything like that. And it's just absolutely gorgeous. Hopefully we'll run into a few sturgeon, seeing, you know, four foot fish levitate by your head. I'll say, dude, exciting. those things were. That is un, that was unreal to see last year. Yeah, man. And then we're gonna we're gonna probably fry copious amounts of panfish and make some stops along the way at the local uh You should join us water and holes. I'll have to look into that. It's gonna be awesome, man. So you don't have to do the full fifty mile trip, which starts on a Wednesday and ends on a Sunday, correct? Correct. We're gonna start Wednesday out of the Swanee River state park but we will be in the cabins on thursday night at lafayette blue Springs state park so somebody can come to lafayette blue on thursday night or early friday morning because we'll probably get on the water by 8 30 or 9 which is actually that's kind of late what month are you doing this may may, may. May, it's a weekend yeah. after you the know, crawfish bowl. Okay, so take a mask and snorkel with you on this trip. Yeah, there's yeah. some springs along the way. You oh, got to yeah. snorkel around and check out. Oh man, we oh, dude, we're gonna hit some, some big awesome ones. We're hitting Palm. Year. We'll hit um, is Palm or Royal Spring is huge. Mm-hmm. We'll hit the Rendezvous, but you can't dive in there. Yeah, but there's convict. Um, yeah, it's convict. And then across the way, there's another one. It's private. That's Royal. One. That's Royal. Is so. My, we were over staying over there at Convict Springs at River Rendezvous, and my kids would go over to Royal, and they, they got permission to go over there. And it's like you can go over there, and they would take and swim across and go over there and hang out. They said it's really cool, Dad. You got to check it out. Yeah, Telford and Terrapin. We'll be mm-hmm. we'll be all over those springs. Uh, Troy Springs on the way. Um, bunch of the big. We're not going to be doing cave diving or anything, but uh, no. So um, do some snorkeling, check it out. But yeah. what what I was getting at, if you if you don't want to do fifty, you can meet us on Friday and do thirty. Study. Yeah. Yeah. So we got, mm-hmm. I think we still now, got Now, are two, you canoeing or boating? Canoeing. Canoeing. Okay. Canoeing. I think we still got two unsold places yeah. in, the, in the cabins. Yeah. And if we go over, we'll figure something out. We'll take your extra rent, buy a, hit, hit the water and hole and make sure everybody's well hydrated. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, Chad, I thank you for joining us. I My yeah, pleasure to be here. Blast. Thank you so much. And until next week, we'll see you guys. So. Out of here.